Charlotte, what happened out there during the contract signing with Page? It got extremely personal. What is your immediate response to what just happened? What the hell is wrong with you people? You disgust me. You disgust everyone. Everything you touch dirty. It's business time, baby. The Solomonster sounds off. My client, Brock Lesnar, conquered the street. This doesn't make any sense. Your title belt is made of leather. You're not a real vegan. He's fat. You haven't been beat up properly. Woo! Man, what a week this turned out to be. This is episode 410 of the Solomonster Sounds Off here for Sunday, November 22nd, 2015, Survivor Series Sunday. I am the Solomonster. I want to take a moment here up front to wish a very happy 56th birthday to my mother. Uh, This has been a very shitty year for my family, as you all know. Uh, I haven't given an update on things in a few months. Thank you to everybody who's been asking about her. She is doing as well as can possibly be expected, given the circumstances, uh, she's been able to avoid straight-up chemo so far, so that's a plus, as long as this other stuff keeps working. But um, it, it, it's taking its toll. You know, there, there have definitely been some tough side effects for her to deal with, but it's better than the alternative. That's what I keep telling her. Whether she believes that or not, I'm not so sure. As I uh, told the doctor the other day when he called me, I said, you know how she can be. And his response was, yes, I know. So we're all on the same page as far as that goes. I also just want to uh, shout out Don Tony for recommending this great little place in Howard Beach. I know we have a lot of New York listeners here. Uh, It's a place called Bruno's. Uh, We were there last night. Great food. This one guy walked in, leather jacket, white hair. He looked like a cross between Ric Flair and Bill Maher. If you can picture that, it was the freakiest thing. Uh, but I just wanted to say thank you for that. Before we get going here, got to uh, show some love to Audible. We still have our Audible trial offer going for listeners of the Sound Off, as we well straight through until the end of the year. Uh, it's been a strong year so far. If you have not yet taken advantage of it, now is the time. I got an email yesterday alerting me that the entire Harry Potter series is now available on Audible. And I can tell you, I've never read any of the books myself. I haven't even seen the movies, but if that's your thing and you're a Harry Potter fan and you've seen the movies, whatever, if you sign up for a 30-day trial of Audible right now with our URL, which is audibletrial.com slash Solomonster, you can download one of the books for free and keep it, even if you cancel your trial in the first 30 days. Uh, So, of course, if Harry Potter isn't your thing, which I'm guessing it isn't for a lot of people... You've got Daniel Bryan's book, Brock Lesnar's book, Shawn Michaels, Chris Jericho. There's a bunch of others that you can choose from. So uh, pop in our link, audibletrial.com slash Solomonster. You have to go through the full sign-up process or else it doesn't count. And once you sign up, you can sample it for a month. You can get your free audio book and keep it and uh, take advantage of that offer while it is still going on. Also, before I started recording here, I got the go-ahead email from Pro Wrestling Tees to go ahead and start promoting it, so I will. So you're all aware, last year we had a big Black Friday sale. A lot of you took advantage of the Black Friday sale on Pro Wrestling Tees and bought a whole bunch of shirts. Well, guess what? They're doing it again this year. So be aware, the Black Friday sale on ProWrestlingTees.com begins this Wednesday, November 25th, 12 p.m. Eastern, 
It's only going to go for five days. It goes through the following Monday, November 30th, also at 12 Eastern. That's when it comes to an end. During that time period, if you use the promo code Black Friday, all one word, you can get 20% off of your total order. So this is the chance for you to go ahead and order one shirt, the new 8-Year Strong shirt that we have up in there that's been doing very well. Any of the other shirts, over 20 of them for you to choose from. If you've been on the fence, if you've been waiting, if you've been procrastinating, if you've been thinking, hey, maybe there's going to be another Black Friday sale, it is officially here, and it starts this Wednesday. Not only do you get 20% off, any orders over $100 get a special Andre the Giant t-shirt free. They'll throw that in as well. So, ProWrestlingTees.com slash off. That's our URL. All of our shirts are up there. They ship up to a size 5XL all over the world. Take advantage of the sale. It starts on Wednesday. It goes straight through until the following Monday, and then it is over. That is it. So use the promo code Black Friday Again, that's all one word. And you can get the new 8-Year Strong shirt. You can get the official logo shirt. You can get the shitty The Announcer shirt. You can get all three. You can get them as a holiday gift if you want to for somebody. Take advantage of the discount. They don't have to know. <laughs> you can you can give it to somebody as a stocking stuffer if you want to. But definitely take advantage of that because after November 30th, that sale is over. And you can make a PayPal donation on the Solomonster.com. $10 or more will get you a wrestling nickname. I want to say thank you this week to Deadpool James Herrera, John Loose Cannon Lopez, Robert Loverboy Lopez, who just celebrated a birthday on the 19th. So happy birthday, Robert. Masterpiece, Matthew Barnes. Dashing, David Vera. Torsten, the Game Changer, Gabel. Russell, the Muscle. Matt, Scalamander, Scala, who wishes everybody a happy holiday season, as do I. And the five-tool player, Adam Bartolo, fellow Mets fan. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate the support. Again, you can make a donation anytime you want to on thesolomonster.com, or don't. It's up to you. So let's just get right into it here, because today, of course, is Survivor Series Sunday, despite threats of an attack by ISIS. That was the big story yesterday. You know, people have started referring to ISIS as Dash or Desh, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. Apparently, it really makes them angry when people call them that. I prefer douche myself to uh, to Desh. So that's how I choose to refer to ISIS, but uh, I did not know this until only a couple of days ago. But apparently it really pisses them off. The International Business Times on Saturday reported that the group Anonymous had uncovered information about planned terrorist attacks in Paris and some locations here in the U.S. that was set for today. They said among the targets that Douche is planning to attack is the Survivor Series tonight in Atlanta. WWE released a statement saying federal, state, and local law enforcement authorities have confirmed there is no specific or credible information involving a threat against the Survivor Series at Phillips Arena. However, WWE and Phillips Arena have coordinated with the appropriate agencies and law enforcement and significantly increased security measures to ensure the safety of all those in attendance, which is our highest priority. Anonymous itself later came out on one of its affiliated Twitter accounts. There is no dedicated Twitter account for Anonymous. It's kind of this loose network of different accounts where they post news and information. So on one of their, I guess, officially affiliated accounts, uh, they denied having anything to do with releasing that information or having any knowledge of any imminent terrorist attack. 
So, to summarize, there's nothing to see here. I'm sure these jihadi jackoffs love all the attention they're getting, so let's not give them any more. That's the end of the story, as far as I'm concerned. There is no terrorist attack. Uh, but might I suggest that with all of the increased security they're likely going to have tonight, it would be a very bad idea to hop the barricade. So if you are going to Phillips Arena for the show tonight, we've had a lot of recent fan incidents, especially during uh, <laughs> Shield members' uh, matches for some reason. So if we get Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose tonight, which I think we are, don't be stupid and hop the barricade because that likely is not going to end well for you. You know, I was amazed at the number of people on Twitter who actually thought WWE was going to cancel the show or that they should cancel the show in in the absence of any real threat. Why would they do that? WWE has never canceled an entire pay-per-view before in its history. You know, they claimed they had to move WrestleMania 7 from the... L.A. Coliseum to the sports arena back in 91 because of a bomb threat that was made against Sergeant Slaughter. That That's their their story, which was really just an excuse to move the show because they wanted 100,000 people in the stadium and the tickets weren't selling, so they moved it to the smaller building. That's the real story. You know, it's funny, you go back and watch WrestleMania 6. I don't know if it's on the network version. I still have the VHS around here somewhere. And uh, during WrestleMania 6, they actually aired an ad for WrestleMania 7 that, you know, was coming to L.A. the following year. And Vince McMahon was was narrating the ad. He just goes, you could join the more than 100,000 screaming fans. I guess exploiting a war that was already over by the time that show took place may not have been the best way to sell tickets. Who knew? Right? Who knew? After last Monday, it looks like exploitation is a time-honored tradition in WWE. But uh, they had that one in your house show where the power got knocked out. They didn't cancel the show. I know they had the Blizzard earlier this year. That that was raw, though. That was not a pay-per-view. Believe me, unless the FBI tells them that there's a credible threat, there was never any chance of them canceling this show. Nor should they have. I don't know why people would have expected them to. Tonight is the 29th annual Survivor Series pay-per-view from Atlanta, Georgia. Of course, it is the climax of the WWE Championship Tournament, the semifinals and the finals. Uh, we'll start with that. We have Roman Reigns going one-on-one against Alberto Del Rio. And I think it's pretty obvious who's going over in this match. I don't even really think... Do I even have to make a prediction in this? Obviously, Roman is going to go over. What kind of match they're going to have, I don't know. You know, Del Rio is an interesting case. I'm going to talk more about Del Rio during the Raw review because... You know, I had great things to say about him a few weeks ago when he first came back, and he has really just gotten ice cold in the last few weeks. But he can go in there with somebody and have a really, really good match, or he can go in there with somebody you would think he would have a good match with, like Callisto, and just stink out the joint. So putting him in there with Roman Reigns, you know, that could go either way. I don't know what kind of match they're going to have. I think they'll have a good match, but you just it's hard to predict because we haven't seen it before. Or, you know, maybe we have. I mean, Del Rio was out for what? He was out of the company for a year. Maybe they had a match. I I don't remember them having any major match before. I think it's the first time. Uh, But Roman's going to go over, and Dean Ambrose and Kevin Owens is the match that I'm more looking forward to. I think they'll they'll go out there and and possibly tear down the house. Uh, I wouldn't be angry if Kevin Owens went over, but I don't expect it. I think Dean Ambrose gets the win. I think it ends up with Roman Reigns against Dean Ambrose in the finals, and I do think that somebody is going to the dark side. I mean, people have been talking about this for weeks to the point where it's almost predictable at this point, but they need a top heel. 
Right? We talked about this before uh, here on the podcast. Seth Rollins was the number one heel in the company. I don't care what you thought of him or him as a champion or a draw or any of that kind of stuff or how boring his promos were. He was positioned as the number one heel in that company, and now he's gone. You have to fill that void. And so if you're going to have Roman against Dean, as much as I love the little bromance between them, and I hate to break that up, one of them's got to turn. And I think it would benefit them. I really do. Especially Roman, which is why I'm hoping they go with the Roman turn and we get the Roman Empire. I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of high hopes that that's exactly how it's all going to go down. And I would not be against Dean turning heel. I do still think long-term the money in him is as just this evil, sadistic villain. But I think at the moment, uh, it would be kind of foolish to turn him and, and hope that people will suddenly get behind Roman Reigns. People, by and large, are not getting behind Roman Reigns the way that they want they want them to. And, and his reactions have improved over the last few months. It's not as bad as it was. But I think the idea of turning the guy that people love and hoping that, pe- that the fans will get behind the guy that they're lukewarm on, it's probably not the best idea. So I think turning Roman and positioning Dean, giving him the ball to run with as the top babyface, even if it's only for a few months, you know, it's one of those things, why not? Why not take a chance? So I'm hoping that's the way it works out. As far as who I think is going to walk out the winner, uh, I think it's Roman Reigns, whether they turn him or not. I think he's leaving as the WWE champion. I think you know that was the plan all along, and I think you know, they're going to stick to their plan. Uh, and as far as whether or not he turns, I guess we'll see. I hope he does, but I, I don't think uh, it changes the outcome any. I think Roman leaves with the championship. We have Undertaker and Kane. The Brothers of Destruction reunited here on the 25th anniversary of the debut of The Undertaker. Taking on two members, unknown at the at the moment, of the Wyatt family. Uh, if I had to venture a guess, I'll I'll go ahead and say Bray Wyatt's got to be in the match, right? He's the ringleader. So I think it'll be Bray Wyatt and Luke Harper. And I say that only because I feel like you, you want to have Harper in the match. Harper is very, very good. I think in terms of the match itself, he will help elevate the match to a level that Braun Strowman, for example, or Eric Rowan would not be able to. So I think it'll be Wyatt and Harper. The other two will be out there, of course. I think Undertaker and Kane are going over. Uh, is it impossible to think the Wyatt family might win? It's not impossible, and I say that because it seems like at every turn so far, since they were attacked all those weeks ago, The Undertaker and Kane have been getting one up on the Wyatt family, and they are operating from a position of strength at the moment. So if they just go in there and they kill the Wyatt family dead, I mean, what does that say about the Wyatt family? I mean, I mean it's not the first time we've seen Bray Wyatt lose... Uh, and lose again, so this would just be more of the same if he lost. Uh, he's overdue for a big win, but I just I don't see it. I just don't see Undertaker and Kane lying down for these guys, so I think they do get the win. And I think it would be kind of cool, honestly, if Undertaker were to come out dressed up in the old uh, gray glove Undertaker attire that he debuted in back in 1990. I don't expect it, but I just think that would be a cool way to, in a way, kind of come full circle and honor the uh, the anniversary here. So Undertaker and Kane is my pick to go over. I mean, the the only way I could see Undertaker and Kane losing is if Kane, and I hope this doesn't happen, but if Kane turns on his brother for the thousandth time just to set up one last match between the two of them at WrestleMania, that's a match I don't think we need to see. 
So I think we get the feel-good moment here. I, I still kind of hope Brad Maddox maybe will show up again in the turkey costume and in tribute to the gobbledygooker. Let us not forget that the gobbledygooker is also celebrating an anniversary here, 25 years on this show. And then maybe Maddox can get tombstoned again. We'll see. There is going to be a traditional 5-on-5 Survivor Series elimination match, but damned if we know who the participants are going to be. I'm sure by the time many of you listen to this, it'll be obvious. As I am recording this, they still have not told us who is going to be in the match. Talk about throwing shit at the wall at the last minute. (laughs) It's hard to make a prediction when you don't know the participants. Uh, And I'm a fan of the old school Survivor Series matches. It would have been nice to know who was going to be in it in advance, but I guess that's too much to ask these days. Uh, I'll I'll say it's going to involve the Usos, the Dudleys, and New Day somehow. Maybe Cesaro will be thrown in there. Uh, I think they should, honestly, I would love to see them bring back the wildcard match from 20 years ago. It was actually 20 years ago here this month. Uh, they did that wild card match where they mixed up the heels and the baby faces. It was like Shawn Michaels and Sid and Yokozuna and the British Bulldog and Ahmed Johnson against uh, Dean Douglas, Owen Hart, Razor Ramon, Yokozuna, and I think one other person. You know, just just to change things up a little bit, I thought I think that would be kind of interesting. We have a singles match: Dolph Ziggler against Tyler Breeze. Their first meeting. Uh, my pick is Tyler Breeze. He's the new guy. I think it would be foolish to start beating him. He already lost his first match on TV to Dean Ambrose. Uh, came back this past week on Raw and won, I think, against R-Truth and kind of pretended like that match with Ambrose never happened. Uh, I think he needs to go over here. So Tyler Breeze is my pick. And then we have the Divas Championship match. Page challenging Charlotte for the title. I guess the storyline now is that she's fighting for her dead brother. So she can't lose. How could Charlotte lose after what she said on Monday night? So she's my pick. I think she's retaining. Uh, you know, we may as well get right into that contract signing garbage from for Raw last week. Raw last week was in, uh, in the Carolinas. They were in Flair Country, Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, my uh, Raw Insta poll up on Twitter as soon as the show is over. 1,165 total votes, which is incredible. That's the most votes yet. 52% thumbs up, 48% thumbs down. Which is an overall thumbs up, but by the very slimmest of margins since I started doing these polls. I really think that had they had that contract signing at the end gone differently, that thumbs up total would have been a lot higher. I thought this was a good show until the end. They ended with a Divas contract signing. The only other time I can remember them doing something like that was with Stephanie McMahon and Brie Bella last year. Typically, you do not see the women in this position on the show. And this is what I've been talking about on the podcast for a while now. Giving the women some main event exposure is the best way to start conditioning the fans to accept them in that position. And some people mocked me and they laughed at me. I still feel that way. You just need the right combination of women. People are chanting, we want Sasha. Then you know what? One of these weeks, when they start pushing her finally... Sasha Banks against one of the other horsewomen in a, in, a, in a big match that they take a week or two to promote. You know what? Depending on what city they're in, I think that could really get over. So initially when I saw they were doing this and when I realized, oh shit, they're saving this for the end of the show, I saw that as an encouraging sign. I wasn't against it. I didn't hate on it. I said, okay, this is cool. Charlotte then brought up her late brother, Reed, during her promo. And she got very emotional. 
She said she wouldn't be where she is right now were it not for him. This is the first time they've ever even mentioned her brother on television, not counting Table for Three. Okay, Table for Three does not have three million people watching like they do on Raw, although those numbers are dwindling by the week. And she was, you know, and her bringing up Reed as her inspiration, I have no problem with that. It's not the mere mention of him. I'm okay with that if it's used in the context of, I went through this horrible tragedy, I lost my brother, he is the reason why I'm doing what I do. That's great. That's a great little dose of realism right there. And that's 100% shoot, and I have no problem with that. Charlotte goes on to say she's fighting for him, to which Paige responds by saying, I guess your little baby brother didn't have a lot of fight in him, did he? And that was the trigger for Charlotte to attack. They brawled all over the place. She tossed Paige over the announce desk at one point on his podcast, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Ric Flair said that this was as good as the brawl between Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker on Raw a few months ago. Then again, he also said that he thought Charlotte's promo here in this segment was one of the very best from a woman ever in wrestling history. Ever! Neither is true. But she's his daughter. So I would expect, you know, that's what fathers do. So I get that. Uh, But he's wrong. The crowd was dead silent throughout the entire brawl. Part of it may have been the shock from what Paige had just said, and part of it may have just been the indifference to not really knowing what the hell she was talking about, since, again, this is the first we're hearing about Charlotte's brother on this show, which they decided to shoehorn in here six days before the pay-per-view. I think it's safe to say that this has the most disgusting promotional tactic locked up for the 2015 Observer Awards. Uh, This was just fucking terrible. And I'm aware of the statement that WWE put out about this. I'm going to get to that later. Reed and Charlotte's mother, Beth, commented about the angle on Twitter after it aired. And and this right here is your legit sad tweet of the week. She tagged Vince McMahon, Stephanie McMahon, and Triple H in the tweet. She called the writers lazy. She called it cheap heat. She said it was disgusting, it was disrespectful, and it was cruel. I saw that, I I told her, I said, I'm sorry you had to watch that garbage, especially if you didn't know in advance that it was coming, because I'm sure, you know, she watches her daughter on TV, I'm sure, just like Rick does, she supports her daughter. So I wrote that back to her, and she responded back to me, and she said she did not. She did not see it coming, she did not get any sort of warning that it was coming, she knew nothing about it until she watched it play out on television. And you know, I'm reminded of this, I remember hearing way back when, and I don't remember where I read this or which newsletter it might have been in, but I I definitely remember hearing that about 10 years ago, actually, WWE called Bret Hart, or, or tried calling him. He may not have answered his phone. Maybe he wasn't home. They called Bret Hart to give him a heads up that they were going to play his entrance music on Raw that one time. Remember in Montreal when Shawn Michaels faked everybody out into thinking that Bret Hart was there? It was actually a really great moment. I guess they were calling him as a courtesy. They called Bret Hart. Maybe they thought they might be able to get him to show up. I don't know. But think about that. They thought enough to call Bret Hart, who was not on good terms with them at that time. He didn't, I mean, he didn't go into the Hall of Fame until the year after. He didn't really come back to the company for another five years. They thought enough to call him for that. 
But no one in that company thinks, hey, it might be a good idea to let the parents know we're going to use their dead son, who died of a heroin overdose, to put some heat on this match. Six days before the pay-per-view, because I guess they thought it was a dead match and people didn't care about it. I did an article the day after this for TJRWrestling.net. It got a great response. Even even the people who disagreed with me and thought, no, no, it's just it's great heat and blah, blah, blah. Even those people seemed to at least get where I was coming from. In the article, I, I said this was right up there in the bad ideas department with WWE putting Melanie Pillman on TV the night after her husband was found dead just to try to pop a rating or having Randy Orton tell Rey Mysterio, I don't know why you're pointing up to the heavens when you talk about Eddie Guerrero because Eddie's in hell. Something neither one of them wanted to do, and they fought like hell against it. You know, it's one of those moments that just makes me embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. Like, when Big Boss Man drags a casket through a cemetery with Big Show's supposed dead father inside, and Big Show jumps on top of the casket, that's something that is so over the top, you find it entertaining. I love that angle. I admit it, I love that angle. Big Show's father, he didn't really just die. It's to my understanding, Big Show's father had already been dead for years. I think at that point. Was it tacky? Yeah, it was tacky. Absolutely. Boss man breaking into Big Show's mother's house and forcing her to call her son a bastard on TV. It was all done, you know, at least partly tongue-in-cheek. And I was fine with that. Just, Just to show everybody I'm not a total stick in the mud when it comes to stuff like this. This, though... This is something very different. You're exploiting a dead kid. I mean, everything that kid did, you know, Ric Flair would talk about him nonstop. And say what you want to about Ric Flair, but it's obviously still a very sore subject for the guy. It hasn't been that long since Reed passed away. There was some idiot on Twitter who was responding, not not to something I wrote, but to... uh, I forgot who. They were responding to one of the other wrestling writers, and they said, oh, it's been two and a half years, enough time has gone by. Like, fuck you. Like, what kind of comment is that to me? Oh, it's been two and a half years, so time to move on. Fucking idiot. So, it really wasn't that long ago that this kid passed away. A little over two years. And I I feel bad for Ric Flair. You know, losing a child has got to be the absolute worst thing in the world for a parent to go through. The worst. Which brings me to Ric Flair's podcast. Now, I wrote that column before his podcast dropped on Tuesday night, where he talked about the angle for the very first time, and it turned out to be even worse than I thought, because Flair didn't know anything about it either, just like his ex-wife. He knew nothing. He said nobody called him before. Nobody has called him about it since, at least uh, up to that point nobody had called him still. He watched it on TV, and he cried throughout the entire thing. And yes, we know Ric Flair cries all the time. If the fucking wind blows in his face too hard, he cries. But, you know, this is a sensitive subject here. He said, obviously, I have an opinion about the whole thing, but I would rather not voice it because I don't want to say anything that might adversely affect my daughter's career. So, if you read between the lines, he was pretty pissed off by the whole thing. He said if he watched that as a fan, he would not have liked it. Uh, PW Insider claims that this was an idea that was pitched to Charlotte, not the other way around. And she agreed to do it. 
you know, why why would she agree to do it? You know, Ric Flair says he doesn't think that she feels comfortable enough to say no to anything yet because she's only been up on the main roster for, what, three months? And she's a woman, and I don't care what anybody says, but you're still at a disadvantage in in wrestling and, and you know, probably in that company as, as compared to, let's say, a main event level guy. You know, these are the main event level divas, but they got a long ways to go before everybody looks at the divas as being on that same level. So, so she's working from a, a position, you know, a disadvantage here, where maybe she doesn't want to rock the boat. You know, they're coming to her and they're saying, hey, we're giving you the main event tonight, and this is what we want you to do. You know, probably wouldn't look good if they turn around and say, yeah, I don't want to do that. Remember what Vince McMahon said on Steve Austin's podcast, don't piss anybody off. Can't give the impression we're not a team player now. I think the most damning things that Ric Flair said on that podcast were in the things he actually didn't say directly. He said, you know, I know Hunter and Stephanie and Michael Hayes have uh, Charlotte's back and they wouldn't go out of their way to do anything to hurt her. Now notice the name he didn't include here in that list. Uh, and then he, and then his co-host uh, questioned him about something like, how does this happen or who approves something like this? And Flair just goes, if somebody writes it down, one person approves everything. Does that make sense? He said. Does that make sense? Yeah. Actually, it does make sense. Makes perfect sense. You know, he's laying this at the feet of Vince McMahon. And deservedly so. The buck stops with him. Nothing that airs on TV airs without him knowing about it or without him approving it. It just doesn't happen. PW Insider also said the angle supposedly was batted around all day long. At one point, the writers took it out of the script. And it was Vince McMahon's call to put it right back in there. But, you know, Flair's words here, they caught a lot of people by surprise because everybody just, everybody that was defending the angle just assumed, well, I'm sure Rick was fine with it, so who are we to judge? I'm sure Rick knew. And then we find out that he didn't know about it, and you've got two parents who were distraught over the whole thing, and it's like, was all of this even necessary? Was it even necessary to throw that comment in there? You couldn't have Paige just attack her after she signed the contract and bloody her up? I I know they wouldn't do that now, but this was the only way to get heat on this feud? Really? And you have the bozos out there, predictably, crowing about the PC police. This is why the Attitude Era would never work today. Everyone's too hypersensitive, they say. Look, I'm, I'm with you, okay? I am with you on the politically correct stuff. There is an awful lot of people out there who get their undies stuck up their crack over the smallest things, okay? And you're right. A lot of what they did 15, 20 years ago would, would never fly today. Shit they did 30 years ago would never fly today. Can you imagine Slick on TV now talking jive and eating fried chicken out of a bucket? They'd be fucking protesting out Titan Tower every single day. Bobby Heenan on commentary calling Tito Santana the flying jalapeno, which actually was pretty funny, I gotta say. Uh, or, or, or I guess a, a more recent example, it was still over 10 years ago, but remember HLA? Hot lesbian action? Get two fat Samoans beating up two women in thongs? One of whom had her ribs broken. You know, this has nothing to do with being politically correct. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about here. You, you are distracting from the issue. It is a nonsense argument. If they pulled this shit 15 years ago, I mean, I speak for myself here. 
If they pulled this shit 15 years ago, I would hate it every bit as much as I hated it now. It would have been a dumb thing to do then, just like it was a dumb thing to do now. Maybe not the idea behind it. Hey, we have to come up with something to help uh, ignite this feud. You know, that's not the worst idea in the world. But then to come up with this? And I didn't even realize this until somebody brought it up to me. But the hypocrisy of using Ric Flair talking about his son's death as at least part of the reason for firing Jim Ross. That was when he lost control of that video game panel, SummerSlam, a couple years ago. And now turning around and using Reed's death to get cheap heat on television? Yeah, I think that deserves a mention, too. Now, WWE did release a statement about this on Thursday. They said, Subject matter this personal is only approved as a result of the strong advocacy of the talent themselves. Notwithstanding that, WWE is ultimately responsible for what airs in its programming. For what it's worth, Conrad Thompson who is Ric Flair's co-host on his podcast, knows the family very well, claims that any insinuation at all that this was Charlotte's idea is 100% false. That's what he said. Now, you read that statement, they didn't outright say that it was Charlotte's idea, but they kind of did. Okay, I read that, and I read that as they threw her under the bus. Hey, take one for the team. Take some of the heat off of us. That's what I thought when I hear that statement. I don't even know why they felt the need to say anything. They replayed the fucking thing on SmackDown. It's not like they're hiding from it. They may as well just own it at this point. You know, what's done is done. I mean, I'm all for realism in wrestling, but you don't have to exploit dead kids to add realism. It was a bad idea that never should have been pitched in the first place. Now I see they're making themselves look even worse. This, this news that they've made changes now to their policy of allowing their talent to appear on certain podcasts and radio shows. They don't want anybody talking about this, so they are no longer allowing them to appear on, on those shows. Unless it's like an ESPN or a Talk is Jericho or Sam Roberts or something like that, like, like a safe zone. That's okay. Everybody else, no longer okay. It's like, you know what? Whatever. Just... Don't talk about dead kids on your TV shows, okay? That way their mother doesn't have to go on social media and make you out to be a bunch of evil monsters. So, the rest of this show. We had druids walking to the ring before Undertaker and Kane made their entrance. They came to the ring and they said very Undertaker-ish and Kane-ish things like resting in peace and burning in the fiery pits of hell. The Wyatts came out. Bray said they're Creatures of the night now belong to him. That's when the lights went out, they came back on, and all of the druids were wearing sheep masks. And they stormed the ring to attack. They might have been more intimidating had they not all been four foot five. Undertaker and Kane predictably wiped them all out with ease. Then we got the good stuff. Kevin Owens against Neville in a quarterfinal match in the WWE title tournament. As good as this was, it was only the second best match of the night. Neville nailed a brutal-looking standing reverse Rana that looked like Owen just got his head spiked just headfirst into the mat. Got a near fall out of it. Owens dodged a red arrow attempt, caught Neville for the pop-up powerbomb for the win. Just a really, really fun match. 
Uh, if there was anything on this show that I would tell you if you missed it that you should go out of your way to find a copy of and watch, it would be this match and the Roman Reigns match, which we're going to get to. But before we do that, just a little bit more on Kevin Owens here. Kevin Owens and Melissa Joan Hart. We're in the news here. Melissa Joan Hart, for those of you who don't know, is an actress who was maybe best known for her role on a little TV show many years ago called Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which uh, had a cat named... Uh, what was the cat's name? Oh, God, i got to look this up now. <laughs> Was it Salem? I think it was Salem the cat. Let me let me see here. This is going to bother me. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, boy. People can check my uh, Google history here, what they would find. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Salem the Cat. Uh, Salem the Cat. Yep, there it is, Salem the Cat. So I don't know why I just looked that up, but now you know. Anyway, the two of them have been having a, a little Twitter war going on, just for fun. Just a, a little fun Twitter war going on for a while. She called Owens a lazy wrestler, after which Owens promptly blocked her on Twitter, which spawned an I stand with Owens hashtag. I think the New Day went also ahead and blocked her, and they stood with Owens. It was all in good fun. But then people on social media did what they do best, which is suck the fucking fun out of everything. They started attacking this poor woman. She had to clarify her comments to explain that she was talking about Kevin Owens, the character, not Kevin Steen himself. She's a huge wrestling fan, huge WWE fan, by the way. She's been following the product for years. She tweets about them all the time. But that may end soon because people began attacking her family and attacking her kids with some of the most ridiculously offensive tweets. I'm not even going to repeat what they said here. The Paige Charlotte stuff was one of those things that just makes you embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. This was the other thing. Okay, we got a twofer this week. Two in one week. Two times to put your head down in your hands and just shake your head at what the fuck is wrong with people. What is wrong with some of these people? I would love to know. This woman is actually a fan. She's one of you. She's having some fun with it. And and you're threatening her kids? Why don't you do us all a favor and pull your bottom lip over your fucking head and swallow Dean Ambrose pinned uh, Dolph Ziggler with the Dirty Deeds in another very good match to advance in the tournament. After the match, Ambrose got on the mic. He said, when I win the title, things are going to change around here. There's going to be more action and less talking. Uh, Unless the champion is going to start booking the shows now. I'm not sure how he intends to change that, but good luck with that. He also said we're going to have breakfast for dinner, which was kind of lame, and, and he's going to replace Michael Cole with a fish tank, which I'm all for. You don't even have to put any water in the tank, let alone fish. Better yet, maybe they could stuff Cole inside the fish tank somehow so we could all just point and laugh at him every week. Roman Reigns came out for his match and cut a promo beforehand talking about the Roman Empire and narrating his entire story over the last few months, which just killed this for me. You know, John Cena, I've called him the Morgan Freeman of WWE before. I say leave the narration to him. The last thing Roman Reigns needs to be doing is coming out and narrating his life story every single week. He and Cesaro had a fantastic match, fantastic 20-minute match, one of the best singles matches I think that he's had in his entire career. Uh, Cesaro certainly had a lot to do with that, but so did Roman. You can't just say, well, Cesaro carried him, because that's, that's yes, Cesaro did his part. Roman Reigns did his part, too. It's like some people are incapable of giving the man any credit at all. <laughs> He's not Cesaro, so therefore, 
I don't like him, and anything he does is garbage. See, I don't subscribe to that. I watch a Roman Reigns match, and you know, sometimes it depends who he's in the ring with. You put Roman Reigns in there against the Big Show, you put Roman Reigns in there against Braun Strowman, you're not going to get a good match. It's probably going to be a dud. He's not at that point now where he can carry people. I think he may get there, but he's not there yet. But there's a difference between, oh, I can carry somebody to a great match, I can have a great match with almost anybody, or just being a good wrestler and being able to go in the ring and hang with whoever you're in there with and have a pretty fucking badass match. And Roman Reigns is more than capable of doing that. We've seen it many times before. Him and Brock Lesnar, I thought, had one of the better WrestleMania main events that we've had in a long, long time. I mean, the WrestleMania 30 match, the triple threat was... was Probably better. That was a very good match. But honestly, go back over the last 10, 12 years of WrestleMania and look at the main events. Look at the final match on the show. Okay, You're going to have a a few really good matches and you're going to have a lot of matches that really weren't all that great. And I'm thinking John Cena and The Miz. I'm thinking Rock and Cena. I was not a huge fan of that first match they had. I I was even less of a fan of the second match they had. Okay, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels had a, had a great match. Triple H and Randy Orton did not, for, for many different reasons, at WrestleMania 25. It's hit or miss. You know, it's, it's the biggest spot you could possibly be in, the main event of WrestleMania, but it's hit or miss. And I thought Roman went out there with Brock, and they had a great match, and that wasn't just because of Brock. You've got to be willing to give Roman Reigns some credit here, or you lose any sort of credibility in your argument. You don't have to be a Roman Reigns fan, but to not give him any credit, I, I don't understand this bullshit. So, both guys were great in this match. Cesaro maybe more so, but Roman more than held his own. Uh, I thought they both looked good. Cesaro looked strong even in defeat. The outcome of the match, of course, was never in doubt, but the people were into it all the way through, which is more than I can say for most everything else on this show. They didn't boo Roman out of the building or anything like that. It will, it will never not be impressive to me to see Cesaro propel somebody up into the air and catch them coming down with an uppercut. Uh, I'd like to see him start beating people with it. That would be kind of nice. Flair on his podcast said it would only take two months to get Cesaro ready as a legitimate opponent for Brock Lesnar. How long have I been saying this on, on this podcast? It would not be that hard. He and I are in agreement on that. The one thing I would actually argue is, I don't even think it would take that long. But yes, Cesaro absolutely can be built up as a legitimate opponent for Brock Lesnar. And as I said a few weeks ago, I'd like to see that at WrestleMania. Unless they have a better plan for Brock, if Brock's going to wrestle for the title, that's fine. But otherwise, I'm looking at Brock Lesnar and I'm saying, who the hell could this guy face at WrestleMania if he's not in the main event wrestling for the championship? And the name that I keep coming back to is Cesaro, and now is the time. You know, he's got momentum coming off this match now, even though he lost. Keep this going. We're not that far away from WrestleMania. If you were going to build to that match, you've got to start now. Start building this guy up. Start giving him some big wins. And people will take him seriously as an opponent for Brock Lesnar. Absolutely. So anyway, multiple Superman punches here at the end. A spear. That was all she wrote. Sorrow got pinned. Uh, The two of them shook hands. They hugged outside the ring when it was over. Got some sportsmanship here. Uh, Had I turned the show off at this point, this would have been in the running for one of the best Raws of the entire year. But it is amazing how that one extra hour can change things so drastically. 
I was very much looking forward to seeing Alberto Del Rio and Kalisto. I thought, I don't know. I, I had no reason to think this because I hadn't seen them wrestle each other before, but I thought their styles, I thought it would end up being a great match. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Uh, this match was a, a real letdown. Uh, botches left and right, and Kalisto's mask came off at one point. Del Rio was yanking at it. Uh, somebody sent me an email. Uh, I, I didn't respond to it yet, but he was asking me if Del Rio has some kind of like legitimate inner hatred towards luchadors. Because when he wrestled Sin Cara, if you remember, he would beat the piss out of him. There was that one match where Sin Cara broke his... Uh, like his pinky finger and he wanted to call the match off and Del Rio was so appalled by this he shoved the referee out of the way and he was he was kicking his ass uh, that I think has more to do with some pre-existing heat the two of them had uh, but he, he pointed to that and he pointed to this and he was violently ripping this guy's mask off and I think at one point he was shouting pendejo at him which of course as we all know is Vince Russo code for asshole so I don't think it's any kind of uh you know, I don't think he has any sort of angst towards luchadors. I just think he gets very, very animated when things are not going well. Like in the in the Sin Cara match. Sin Cara wanted to call the fucking match off. That pissed off Del Rio. And he expressed himself. I think he realized as this match was going on, this is not going well. And it pissed him off. And I think we saw some of that come out here in this match. Uh, and, you know, with Del Rio... You know, what a difference a few weeks makes with this guy. When he came back, he had the ripped body, which I guess he still kind of does. He looked rejuvenated. He beat John Cena clean. Not too many people get to do that. He won the U.S. title. I was saying, man, I I would love to see him in there against Cesaro or even Del Rio against Brock Lesnar maybe at some point down the road. And I still think those could be great matches. But this guy is just ice cold right now. And this Mex-America stuff with Zeb, it's just brutal. This is just brutal. I mean, it reminds me of when they put Ricardo Rodriguez together with RVD, which didn't last very long. I mean, whatever the opposite of chemistry is, those guys had it. And I think you could say the same for Alberto and Zeb. I mean, Zeb's a great talker, but just totally miscast here in this role. I mean, if their plan is to get this guy over as their big Latin star, I'm not sure pairing him off with Yosemite Sam is the best idea. Del Rio won with a double foot stomp off the top rope. Kalisto was hung upside down in the corner for the Tree of Woe. This was the second attempt, and Del Rio looked like he almost killed Kalisto coming down on this move. He, he kind of he stumbled on top. He was trying to keep his balance, and then he was losing his balance, so he just jumped. I was amazed that Kalisto wasn't injured on the spot. Uh, this, this sucked. There's no other way to say it. This sucked. And they followed this up with that awful contract signing. This show went from the penthouse to the outhouse very, very quickly. Uh, John Cena, by the way, before we move on here, uh, it is a rumor no more. He is, in fact, out filming for a new reality show for Fox. It's called American Grit. It is a military-themed competition. He is going to be the host. I guess they must really think he's a Marine or something. Uh... There's this from the description of the press release. Sixteen of the country's toughest men and women will be split into four teams as they work together to face a variety of military-grade and survival-themed challenges. Contestants will play for up to a million dollars with each episode culminating in The Circus, a punishing endurance-based obstacle course designed to break the weakest competitors. Sounds like Raw. I know many of you have already been broken by this show. You don't even watch it anymore. 
I think they can make a reality show out of fans sitting at home watching Raw to see how many of them can stay through the entire three hours, and then the winner should get some kind of prize for all of their suffering, like a free subscription to New Japan World or maybe some Lucha Underground DVDs. I'm actually not wearing pants, and that's how I watch NXT every single week. There were some TNA stars sighted backstage at Full Sail University during the NXT tapings on Thursday night. The biggest among them, Austin Aries, was spotted and confirmed as being backstage, as well as uh, James Storm, who of course is already kind of part of NXT. I don't know if he's officially signed a deal yet or not, but he was there with Gunner, another former TNA star. Uh, They were, I don't believe any of them appeared uh, on the tapings that took place that night. Uh, None of them wrestled, except James Storm. James Storm did wrestle. He was there. So uh, we don't know exactly why they were there. We can kind of figure out why they were probably there. Uh, Austin Aries, to me, is the one that intrigues me the most. Uh, I think he can bring a lot to that NXT brand. Uh, They're going to want to expand the brand and do more touring and stuff coming up next year. And as they call more people up to the main roster, uh, they're going to need some more names to help sell tickets. And all due respect to the current NXT guys that are there, like Gable and Jordan and Enzo and Kaz, I think they're well on their way, but I don't know how many tickets those guys alone can move unless you have people like Samoa Joe and Finn Balor and Sami Zayn and people like that uh, as your star attraction. So I think bringing in an Austin Aries, who I don't think is ever going to get a shot on the main roster, but absolutely could be one of the top stars on NXT is uh, is very smart. Just like last week, I pitched AJ Styles. You know, he he I think can also bring a lot to that NXT brand, even though he's almost forty. You know, he he in a lot of ways I think is at the peak of his career right now. If you look at some of the recent work of his in New Japan, and it was bodies a little beaten up, but I think these guys can really bring a lot to the table. And I mean, how long are you going to flirt with it, right? How many years has has it been that people have? said, oh, well, AJ Styles can go to WWE, and, you know, a guy like AJ Styles, I could see eventually being on the main roster, uh, but I don't know that any of these guys are ever going to make it there. Austin Aries, like I said, I don't ever see him uh, being there, and it has nothing to do with his ability, it's just, I don't see that happening, uh, but NXT, why not? Why not? So we'll see, we'll see if anything official comes from it, but uh, that that's the extent to which we know anything at this point. Uh, And I'm not going to give away any spoilers about anything that happened at the tapings on Thursday, but I will say Eva Marie did wrestle Bayley for the Women's Championship on that uh, that show. Uh, That match is going to air this coming Wednesday. We'll we'll talk a little more about that in a few minutes here. Also, former CMLL and New Japan star La Sombra has signed with WWE. His real name is Manuel Alfonso Andrade Oropesa. I hope I pronounced that right. He is going to be part of the NXT roster. He had a tryout for WWE back in 2011. They passed on him. He wore a mask for many, many years. He only lost it. Uh, it was in a match in Mexico a few months ago, which is kind of surprising. You know, he, He's a young guy. He's 26 years old. Uh, but he lost the mask. And, um, you know, he may end up being better off for it. I think of like Alberto Del Rio. Del Rio wore a mask for years and years and years. And ditching it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. As as good as he was with the facial expressions when he first debuted in WWE and winking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, WWE is very big on that sort of thing. Uh, his English apparently is not great. 
he he speaks a little bit of it, so he's going to have to work on that. But I think, you know, probably being without the mask will be better off for him in the long run. He uh, started out in CMLL. He debuted there when he was only 17 years old. Uh, very Rey Mysterio-esque. I think Ray also, Ray debuted when he was very young too, I think. He held almost every title in the promotion. He's also been a, an IWGP Intercontinental Champion over in New Japan, which WWE mentioned in their story on their website. Uh, there's going to be a lot of other well-known people that, between this and, again, Aries being there at the tapings this week, there's going to be a lot of other well-known people that end up being signed for NXT deals in the upcoming months, whether they are from Mexico or Japan or Ring of Honor uh, or TNA. Uh, they're going to be stocking up. Believe me, this is only the beginning. Show opened on Wednesday with Carmella facing Nia Jax. Nia made short work of her. It was so short that it actually wasn't too bad, uh, but it wasn't good either. Standing spine buster followed by the leg drop for the pin. And then the referee, as they always do on NXT, if you pay attention, tells her to smile. Smile for the camera. Say cheese. That's what I'm, I'm going to think that in my head now every time I see one of these referees telling them to smile. Say cheese. The Ascension, the longest reigning NXT Tag Team Champions, made their triumphant return to Full Sail University on this show. Not triumphant in that they won. Maybe that's not the right word. Uh, but the crowd reaction to these guys, holy shit, were these two guys over. They were so over here that the crowd forgot that they liked Jordan and Gable. I mean, they got a, a decent reaction, but not the kind of reaction that they've been getting. They gave that to the Ascension. Jordan and Gable, they've been the most popular act on NXT for, for weeks now. And the Ascension outpopped them. Uh, not only that, you know, Connor and Victor, both of them, they're, they're cracking smiles. They looked so happy to be back in Orlando. You know, on the main roster, they looked like hostages forced to, to dress up in bad Halloween costumes. You know, here in NXT, these guys are treated like kings wearing bad Halloween costumes. You know, Ascension got a lot of offense in. Crowd did their little ya-ya chant. They did the uh, ya-ya chant to the tune of Kurt Angle's theme music, so poor, uh, poor Chad Gable. Uh, he's already yesterday's news. They won with their move, Jordan and Gable did, where Jordan throws the guy into the air, and Gable caught Victor on the way down for the pin. Uh, you know for a fact that when they got backstage, the Ascension wrapped their arms around each one of Triple H's legs <laughs> and had to be dragged out of there, kicking and screaming. They were begging him to stay. Wonder if Sasha Banks is feeling that same way yet. Emma tapped out Mary Kay to the Emma Lock in a quick match. Mary Kay is the former Rosie Lotta Love, who was trained by Bubba Ray and Devon in their school. She used to be 130 pounds heavier when she uh, sat on Daphne in a dark match back in the TNA days, and she badly injured her. One of the many injuries that Daphne suffered in TNA that they didn't seem to give a fuck about. And I talked, talked, talked about that a long time ago here on this podcast when we talked about their appalling treatment of the knockouts. I think that was episode 156. Uh, but yeah, this was the same woman. I mean, you could find the before and after of her online. She looks like a completely different person. I'd say there's a whole lot less to love on, uh, on her these days. Baron Corbin... Did a promo, says he doesn't like Apollo Crews, which is why he fucked up his title match against Finn Balor. 
Very straightforward. I don't like you, and I'm going to challenge you to a match at TakeOver, which is what he did. The new NXT Tag Team Champions, Dash and Dawson, beat Corey Hollis and John Schuyler, perhaps the most generic-sounding tag team in the entire world. And, of course, Dash and Dawson won with their move. Backstage, Tom Phillips was interviewing Asuka when Dana Brooke interrupted, still offended that Asuka had the audacity to pat her on the head after their last match at TakeOver, since that is uh, Dana's move, after all. So they're going to have a rematch on NXT this upcoming Wednesday. Asuka uh, sadistically pulled off the mask that she was wearing in this segment and said, Yes. I can't even do it. She, 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 she was so great here. She said yes. She accepted Dana's challenge. She walked away. Emma came into uh, camera view. And uh, she was laughing with Dana. Clearly they're conspiring. They've got a plan. They're going to tie Asuka up and lock her in one of the classrooms at Full Sail and show her Eva Marie matches on a loop until she quits. They announced that Finn Balor will defend his NXT title against Samoa Joe at TakeOver. Next week we will get the contract signing. I hope uh, Balor and Joe don't have any dead siblings, and if they do, I hope nobody tells WWE about it. Bailey against Alexa Bliss. In the main event for the NXT Women's Championship, the match was okay. Nothing really special. Yeah, it's funny... I kind of said something about this a few weeks ago, but it was very apparent to me here. I mean, they've got a lot of different women doing different things. I I wouldn't say the the women's division is dead on NXT because you do have a lot of different women involved in different programs, but I think just maybe in terms of match quality, uh, the division has gone straight to hell since the other horsewomen left, and uh, Bayley is kind of the only one there, aside from Asuka. Asuka and Bayley, I think, are the only ones worth a damn when it comes to that right now. Uh, Bailey won with a belly-to-belly suplex out of nowhere. Like, no tease, no setup, no nothing. Just suplex and done, one, two, three. And then, just when you thought the show was about to end, out comes Eva Marie. This crowd at Full Sail, they booed the shit out of this woman. She got in the ring, they wouldn't even let her speak. She told the crowd, be quiet, you little dorks, which I thought was awesome. I thought that was great. I don't know if she improvised that or not. She probably did. Uh, I thought that was great. That might have been the best thing she's ever done. I think, you know, the more I watch her, this woman, what, here's what she needs to do. Eva Marie needs to channel her inner cane and embrace the hate, okay? She's already, she's already dressing in red like, uh, like he does. They need to let her go all the way with this. Just start berating the fans and calling them virgins and geeks and playing into every possible stereotype of wrestling fans that you could possibly think of. She needs to have that picture of the the carpal tunnel dude from South Park sitting in front of his computer. She's got to have that burned onto a t-shirt, you know, with her, uh, her nipples sticking out like they were here on this show. And wear that shirt every time she's on television. You know, like, I'm hot, I've got big boobs, I'm all red everything, and the only red on you is the acne all over your pimply little faces. I, I mean, seriously, people people already hate her guts. Imagine the nuclear heat that this woman would get if she played it up even more. I mean, her heat is already on a nuclear level. This would be, I don't know what the next level up from nuclear would be, but it would be so much better if she just played this to a hilt. 
Uh, she told Bailey that next week she would be wrestling her for the women's championship, not women's. She called it women's. In a, uh, you know, in a perverse kind of way, I can't wait to see this match. I'm very much looking forward to it. If she could actually wrestle, she would be the biggest heel in the entire company. WWE or NXT. Eva Marie would be the number one heel in the company if she could actually work and couple that with all of this heat that she's getting. But the thing is, if she could wrestle, the people wouldn't be booing her. So, it's this weird situation that you're in where she's got all this heat, but it's for all the wrong reasons because she's not that good. She's she's terrible. But if she was good, she wouldn't have the heat. So, it's it's you can't have both. The only match I want to see more, I think, is Eva against Asuka. Okay, they've been doing it on all the live events down in Florida. They do the, the NXT loop down there. I've seen some photos. But I want to see that match on TV. I mean, the only way that they could ever justify to me putting that championship on Eva Marie, taking it off Bailey, and putting it on her, which I still think is going to happen. If it doesn't happen next week, it's going to happen at some point. The only way for me that they could justify doing that is if she immediately loses it to Asuka like on the very next show. Like, Eva as a Bob Backlund 1994 transitional champion who holds the title for, like, three days and then loses it in eight seconds, that I'm okay with. Some TV announcements for TNA and ROH this week. We'll start with TNA. TNA has found a new home for Impact in 2016. They have announced that they are moving to Pop TV, which is the former TV Guide channel. I don't have the channel, so I had no idea what Pop TV even was when I first heard this. But it is available in up to 85 million homes. Doesn't mean it isn't 85 million homes, but it's available uh, to up to 85 million homes. Which is up from Destination America's 57 million, so that's an improvement. The show is moving to Tuesday nights, starting with a live special on January 5th, 9 p.m. Eastern. They are not paying for airtime, contrary to some uh, rumors online that uh, Paragon Pro Wrestling is another promotion that's been airing on Pop TV for a while now. They were paying the network for time and then trying to sell their own ads to make money. That is not the arrangement that they have with TNA. Uh, Paragon Pro Wrestling, by the way, as a result of this, uh, for those of you that do watch and follow the promotion, they are now officially done with Pop TV. Their last show aired yesterday. Uh, You can go on their website if you want to find out how to get the show now. Uh, Impact has now gone from Fox Sports Net, which actually was a time buy for them, that was paid programming, to Spike TV, to Destination America, and now Pop TV. And I say good for them. It keeps them alive here domestically, because without television in this country, you, I mean, the promotion itself may live on, but you're, you're pretty much dead in the water. And they've been dead in the water for a while now. Uh, will this help rejuvenate them? You know, I don't know. We, we've been down this road how many times before with TNA, whether it was the change of regime, Hogan and Bischoff, or a fresh start on this network, a fresh start on that network. We heard all of this with Destination America a year ago. So I don't know why this would be any different, but good for them. You know, I don't know what kind of audience they're going to be able to build there, but it's better than the alternative. Uh, the announcement, however, I have to say, was... Classic TNA. They put a countdown clock on their website the day before, and then an hour before it was to expire, they accidentally leaked a YouTube video announcing the news. 
And then something happened, and I went on their website to check the countdown clock, and it was replaced for a while. I don't know if it was an hour or longer than an hour, but it was replaced with a giant gray box, an empty gray box, with a little sad face in the middle. <laughs> I mean, that kind of sums up TNA's year right there, I think. But, uh, but hey, here's hoping for brighter days and only slightly delayed paychecks. My first thought when I heard the news, besides good for them, was... I wonder if the TNA fanatics, and when I say TNA fanatics, I don't mean every TNA fan. I mean the mentally unstable ones, and you know who you are. Or maybe you don't. Maybe that's why you're mentally unstable. You think you're normal. But I I wondered if the TNA uh, fanatics who bashed Dave Meltzer when he broke the news that Destination America was not going to be renewing Impact would apologize for all of the nasty things that they had to say about him. Because they had, I mean, everything under the sun they had to say about Meltzer. And then I realized these are the TNA Mecca folks that we're talking about here. And of course they won't. Of course not. One of those deranged individuals, in fact, currently works for TNA. His name is Eric Young. Isn't he supposed to be a crazy man on TV? That's his gimmick, right? Living the gimmick, apparently, this guy is. He didn't waste any time in doubling down on stupid after the announcement was made. Somebody sent me this tweet that he sent. He said, wonder what the quote-unquote journalist will use to make this a negative. So much for being canceled in October. Hashtag scumbags. Hashtag not journalist. Hashtag TNA 2016. Obviously, the journalist he's referring to is Meltzer. And, And what Eric Young is doing is what a lot of TNA fans, I'm sure, are doing or the the Mecca contingent, they are clinging to the part where Meltzer said that they would be done in September as as this evidence that apparently the entire story was false. Destination America ended up giving them a small stay of execution so they could find the new TV deal. But obviously what he reported turned out to be accurate, which is that they were not renewing impact. Now, he's blocked me on Twitter, so I can't do it myself. But someone please go out and buy a can of alphabet soup and arrange the letters to explain this to Eric Young and then take a picture and tweet it to him. Because I think that's the only way he may actually understand it. Now, PW Insider did an interview with Dixie Carter after the news was announced, and they asked her about the report, originally uh, from The Observer many months ago, that an email she sent in error to the head of Destination America may have been at the root of why the network opted to not renew Impact. Because if you remember, the story was that Dixie had written an email that had some unsavory things to say about either the head of the network or one of the heads of the network. I think she may have called him an idiot. Because she was frustrated that they weren't, uh, I guess, in terms of looking at the performance of Impact, they weren't factoring in the plus three DVR ratings because, you know, TNA had strong DVR viewership, and so that means our audience is actually bigger, and so this guy is an idiot. Well, turns out the idiot was her, if the story is true, because the email was sent to that person. He was copied on the email or whatever. It was It was sent to him by accident. And all of a sudden came the internal memo that he reported on that Impact was not going to be renewed at the end of this year. So you put two and two together and you figure, okay... Obviously, that email must have had something to do with that. So they asked her about it. And this is what Dixie Carter said. This was her denial, I guess you would say. 
She said, let me just say that there's been a lot of false things that have been reported on as it relates to that partnership, and I have attempted to take the high road and, you know, through the whole thing. If I was to respond to every single little thing that came up, I would sit here 24 hours a day doing so. So, no. Every, I think, uh, now people can tell that what was reported was false, and everything is completely future-focused. I cannot wait until January 5th, and it will be... Uh, not just the new year, but there is going to be a completely new vibe to everything as it relates to Impact Wrestling. That was the statement from Dixie Carter. So she says people can tell that what was reported was false, but she doesn't specify exactly what was so false. What exactly was false? That's got to be the worst denial I've ever heard. If it was absolutely wrong, she could have come out and said, nope, that was a fake story, there was no truth to it, and just move on. They still deny. Deny, deny, deny. And they are, in fact, done with Destination America. So I'm really not sure what exactly was so false about what was reported. They have looked so bad throughout this entire process that if I were them, honestly, you're on a new network now, you've got a new lease on life, if, if these kind of questions come up, either don't answer them or just be honest and say, listen, things happened... It's in the past. We thank Destination America for the opportunity, but we're moving on. And they just, they can't bring themselves to do that. And the first thing that Eric Young goes ahead and tweets after the news comes out, he just cannot let the Meltzer thing go. He just cannot let it go. He can't just send a tweet out and go, Hey guys, we're going to be on Pop TV. This is great. This is going to be a great year for TNA. No, this guy's a scumbag. He's not a real journalist. You see, he was wrong. There is mental illness at play here. There really is. This guy is living the gimmick. I think all of them are. I don't know what's in the water over there in Orlando, but may, you know, maybe they they got to start trying some bottled water here. Because I don't know what's going on. So, again, I'm happy for TNA. Good for them. They got on a new network. But it's the same old song and dance with them when it comes to this kind of stuff. Now, Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor is also leaving Destination America. Their final episode airs this coming Wednesday, the 25th. They are moving to a new digital broadcast channel called Comet TV on Wednesdays at midnight, starting December 2nd. You know, for all this talk about how hot wrestling is right now, I mean, WWE may kind of be cold, but like, oh, wrestling's hot. There's all these different promotions in Lucha Underground and Ring of Honor and TNA and WWE and New Japan. Wrestling is so hot. You know, if wrestling was so hot in this country, then why are all these promotions getting TV on networks I've never heard of before? So I don't want to keep hearing that wrestling is hot. Okay, there's a lot of things to like about wrestling right now. Ring of Honor, I love Lucha Underground. I can't wait for it to come back. NXT, there's a lot to like. But don't try to convince yourself that wrestling is hot. Because if wrestling was hot, then guess what? You'd have Raw on USA. You'd have TNA still on Spike TV. Ring of Honor would get picked up by an FX or some kind of cable channel or even a broadcast network. But a network that has enough muscle to actually put advertising behind them and promote them to a new audience so you're not just promoting to the same wrestling fans. You're actually trying to grow and expand your audience. And you can come up with every excuse under the sun why Comet TV is so great because it's over-the-air broadcast and it's in so many more homes even than, than Pop TV is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because on a Comet TV, they're not growing their audience. It's not happening. If people can even find that channel, the existing fans, hopefully they can keep watching. I'm not one of those people. The channel uh, launched like two months ago. Uh, Ring of Honor is going to be the only real original programming on there. It looks like a a poor man's sci-fi network. It's all sci-fi related programming. Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, 
Stargate Universe. Coming soon, I guess, Stargate ROH. I, I may have to go to space to watch it because I don't have that channel. I put my zip code in on their website. It tells me to go to channel 43.3. What? <laughs> I didn't even know I had a point one or a point two for some channels. Apparently, there's a point three. We're now dealing with fractions of channels here. I went to check. It's not there. Hopefully I can find the show online and I can keep watching it so this doesn't necessarily spell the end of the ROH reviews. It's just going to be a little more difficult for me. Uh, Sinclair has something to do with this comic crap which explains why I can't find it because there is no Sinclair station here in New York City so why would we have Comet? If you have a Sinclair station in your area, supposedly you already have Comet TV. You just got to look for it. You can go on their website. Like I said, I know it's available. I read in 33 different states. I don't care. This is a disappointment. Uh, I give the I give the the win to TNA here in terms of the the warring TV deals. Uh, perception is reality. The perception is that Ring of Honor is not a hot product because if it was. Like I said, there would have been a mainstream network that would have been willing to pick it up, and obviously there wasn't. And they could spin it however they want to, but when people's first reactions are, what is that, and how the hell do I find it, that is a step down. Now, I did watch this week's show, finally. I've missed it the last couple of weeks. Not a week too soon either, apparently, since this Wednesday's the last one. Uh, It opened with a parking lot skit with Silas Young and Dalton Castle's boys, who now belong to Silas. He has promised to make them real men. And I like this. But here's my question. Why did it take two months to get these skits or or any real follow-up to this angle on TV? Silas Young beat Dalton Castle on September 18th to get the boys. Okay, that was the stipulation. If he won, he got Dalton's boys. September 18th. I mean, I know they taped TV many, many weeks in advance, but so does NXT. And NXT always inserts promos or inserts a backstage segment. They had fucking Sami Zayn uh, earlier in the year. They were inserting things of him walking the streets of Montreal, healing from his injury. I mean, you can you can do that on a tape show. You do realize that. These were skits. These were not matches. You could have inserted them into the show a month and a half ago. So Silas tried to have them change a tire and tried to have them drive a stick shift. He caught them using hand sanitizer, which is a big no-no. He flipped his shit. He said, we don't use sanitizer, we use manitizer. And then he hocked a loogie into one of their hands and rubbed their hands together. Uh, There were apparently other skits that aired during the show, but on the version that I saw, which was the Destination America version, uh, they weren't there. And there was also an Adam Cole promo that was missing, so I don't know why, but it wasn't there when I watched it, so that was disappointing. Nigel McGuinness sat in on commentary this week with Kevin Kelly in place of Steve Carino. Carino was suspended as an announcer after putting his hands on B.J. Whitmer a few weeks back. Carino would come out and have an announcement later in the show here. Silas Young in the Beer City Bruiser with the boys. Took on War Machine, Hanson and Rowe. A couple of things I realized while watching this match. Number one, I miss the days when we had wrestlers that looked like the Beer City Bruiser. And number two, Rowe is fucking strong. Holy shit, he hit a delayed exploder suplex on the Bruiser. The Bruiser's like every bit of 400 pounds, or 350, whatever it is. 350 going on 400. And he threw this guy overhead with ease. So that was impressive. The boys got a hold of Roe on the outside. Bruiser 
went for a cannonball dive off the apron, but Roe moved, and he wiped out the boys. Back inside, Superman punched by Roe to the bruiser. That leads to their fallout finish and the win. War Machine is uh, in line for a tag team title shot at Final Battle. I think these guys are one of the best teams in all of wrestling right now. Uh, War Machine. And I, I haven't seen uh, all of their recent matches, but I've seen enough of them to know. And they're, and they're over. They're over as hell. Uh, they are one of the best teams, I think, in, in, in the business right now. We had a, uh, a promo with Steve Carino. Nigel McGuinness brought out Steve Carino and explained to him that because of what he did, he could not reinstate him as an announcer. However, he was going to reinstate him as a wrestler. And he said at final battle, there was going to be a fight without honor. It was going to be B.J. Whitmer against Steve Carino. It's the match that he's wanted. And Carino then uh, dropped the bomb that he would not be able to wrestle that match because he had an MRI done. And he's had some numbness in his hands and his fingers. And he has to have major fusion neck surgery, which is uh, legit. I think he already had the surgery and he's now recovering. And that's a surgery that's going to keep you out for at least a year, year and a half. I think at this stage of the game, we may have seen the last match of Steve Carino. Uh, I'm more disappointed that we're not going to have him on commentary anymore because he and Kevin Kelly were one of my favorite announced teams in all of wrestling, if not my favorite. Uh, I mean, Nigel McGuinness is okay. He's kind of uh, kind of dry, but uh, I'm going to miss those two guys with uh, Carino being out for a while, so... Uh, people look like they weren't expecting that announcement, especially after Nigel had just announced the match, and now there is no match. And Carino thanked the fans, he thanked a whole bunch of different people, and he left to a nice ovation. So, uh, I guess best of luck to him as he recovers. That's uh, pretty major surgery. We had unbreakable Michael Elgin pinning Kevin Lee Davidson after a clothesline. Literally, that was it. He clotheslined him hard and pinned him. Uh, he then cut a promo on Jay Lethal. He threatened to take back the ROH World title from him. I think that match might be taking place at the Tokyo Dome for Wrestle Kingdom. I don't know that for sure. I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but that had been the uh, the rumor for a while. Uh, that would be big, I think, to have a Ring of Honor title defense on that show. And, and Elgin just got the exposure uh, wrestling in the G1 Climax over in Japan, so it would make sense to have him on that show in some way. Uh, Lethal first has to get through AJ Styles at Final Battle, which I think is a lock that he will. I'm not even sure Styles is under contract to Ring of Honor, and I doubt they would put their world title on him if he isn't. Main event was the Kingdom, Matt Taven and Mike Bennett with the lovely Maria Kanellis, defending their tag team championships against The Addiction, Frankie Kazarian and Christopher Daniels with the uh, not-so-lovely Chris Sabin in their corner. Two heel teams against each other, which... I thought ended up making for a very entertaining match. It was a lot more entertaining than I thought it would be, even though the fans didn't really have anybody to cheer for. Uh, I would cheer for Maria myself, but that's just me. They were trying to out-cheat each other the entire time. Uh, There was an Eddie Guerrero spot in here where the referee is down, Taven, Kazarian, each of them have a tag title belt in their hand. They each pretend that the other guy just hit them in the head with the belt. They fall to the mat. The ref gets up. He's all confused. Let's the match continue. Somewhere in here, Maria and Sabin, they get tossed, so they're gone. Matt Taven, he flew, and I mean flew, over the top rope. He wiped everybody out outside the ring. Uh, later on, Maria came back out. Daniel, uh, Chris Daniels went to attack her. Bennett made the save. Uh, Maria then pulls off her best Undertaker impression and kicks Daniels right in the dick, and then super kicks him in the face. 
Some dude in a red mask comes into the ring, hits Kazarian with a super kick of his own, followed by the spear from uh, Mike Bennett for the pin. So the Kingdom retain their tag team titles, and they will defend against War Machine at final battle. I don't know who the guy in the red mask is supposed to be, but I think it would be a little too obvious for it to be Chris Sabin, so I assume it wasn't him, and that uh, we will find out soon enough who that was. So I, I enjoyed this show. I you know, saw some people online, oh, ho-hum, you know, Ring of Honor, boring show, not, not a lot of good wrestling. Yeah, there really wasn't a lot of good wrestling on this show, except, you know, in the main event, but I was entertained. I enjoyed the Silas Young stuff with the boys and the, uh, the Steve Carino promo. And I guess this Wednesday we're actually getting the TV title match between Jay Lethal and Roderick Strong. That's going to be the main event this upcoming Wednesday. Time for the mailbag. If you have questions, you can email me, thesolomonster, at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from when you write in. We'll start here with Tim from Brockton, Massachusetts. I just finished listening to the Ross Report, and his guest this week was Abyss. During the interview, it was mentioned that he was a day away from signing with WWE in 2006 and was scheduled to make his debut at the Royal Rumble and then go on to face The Undertaker at WrestleMania 22. He backed out a day before because of his loyalty to TNA. Do you think he would have been a top star or a bust? Well, I heard that. I went and I listened to the interview. It was a a very good interview. Uh, If you have not heard it, I would encourage you all to go check it out. Uh, I was always of the impression that Abyss had backed out at the last minute for a match with Undertaker at WrestleMania 23... Oh, not 20. Uh, uh, 19. Uh, which only would have been a year after TNA came into existence. So I guess time-wise, that, that wouldn't have made sense. The story itself is true, and it's been out there for a number of years. They had an interest in him. Uh, I did not know that that was going to be the plan at the beginning of 06. So I had my years, uh, I guess, confused there. But yeah, he said on the show that they were going to bring him in. His understanding was he would have come in and debuted at the Royal Rumble. It would have led to a match with Undertaker at WrestleMania 22. And he backed out, not because he got cold feet or, you know, butterflies in his stomach or anything like that, but he really felt in 2006 that TNA was in a good place and they were in a prime position to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And he wanted to be part of that. And out of loyalty, he decided to stay. Now, we can look back on it and say, well, well that was a dumb decision, or, or wasn't it? You know, it, you could play the what-if game all day long. We, we just don't know. You know, maybe he would have been one of those guys that WWE brought in as a one-off for The Undertaker to beat at WrestleMania, because I don't think Abyss was going to break the streak, and then that would have been the end of him. We don't know. I, I think that Abyss would have been... I, I don't think he would have been a bust, but I don't know that he would have been a... Uh, like today, for example, that he would still be a top star in the promotion. I think initially he would have been a top star just by virtue of working with The Undertaker. I think he would have been around the top for a while, and then, like a lot of guys, probably would have ended up falling a little down the card. I, I could see him... How many times have we seen this play out? He comes in as this evil monster... He wrestles The Undertaker, he gets beat, and then eventually turns babyface and turns into, like, a comedy character. Not not a comedy character like Santino, who's at the very bottom of the card, but like a mid-card comedy guy. I think he would have gone through all of that. He would have been like a Kane or a Big Show who goes through these phases of, hey, let's push him as a monster, and then he turns, and now, now he's the lovable babyface, or he's the jokey character, but then, oh, we need a monster, so let's turn Abyss. Abyss would have been turned, like, 15 times by now, had he gone to WWE. 
Uh, I would have liked to have seen him there. I think it probably would have been the better career move for him to make, but he made the choice he made out of loyalty, and he seems happy enough with his decision. He claims he has no regrets. I don't know if I believe that, but he would know better than I would. I don't know how you cannot regret the idea of coming in and working a WrestleMania match with The Undertaker. I, I kind of find it very hard to believe that he doesn't think about that and, and kind of kicks himself. But, yeah, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's perfectly content with his decision. Uh, but, yeah, I think it would have been better off for his career. I don't think he would have been a bust at all. I think he would have been, uh, you know, he would have fit on that roster just fine. Adam from Newcastle, England. With the authority being a major part of WWE, if Shane McMahon was willing to come back, would that be a perfect storyline? Uh, well, I, I assume you mean if he came back to try to uh, take power away from the authority? I do. I do. I think the idea of Shane coming back and cutting like a, a work shoot promo on Triple H about how he wormed his way into the family and and kind of took what belonged to him and drove a wedge between he and his father... I think that could make for some pretty compelling TV. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of truth in there, too. That's usually what makes some of the best promos, right? That's what that's what made CM Punk's pipe bomb promo so memorable. Paul Heyman has cut a couple of work shoots on TV. There was one famous one against Vince McMahon on SmackDown. Now, the best promos like that are the ones that have a lot of uh, elements of truth to it. Even the A.J. Lee promo. A.J. Lee, when she tore, tore into the Divas division and insinuated that the Bellas slept their way to the top. And I'm not saying they did, but a lot of the things that she was saying in that promo about them being total divas and that's not her, she meant that. You know, there was a lot of truth in there. So I think Shane coming back and cutting a promo like that would be uh, would be a hell of a segment. Now, the way I would do it, if I were booking this, I would have Shane, you know, this, this has to carry on for a number of months. So... I don't know what it is that brings Shane back or whatever, but Shane has just got to become a thorn in Triple H's side. Make his life difficult until he accepts this challenge. Because Shane wants to get back into the picture. He wants to reclaim what he thinks belongs to him. Shane gets to pick one man to take on Triple H's surrogate. I'd rather it be a surrogate and not Triple H himself. Uh, so maybe the surrogate is whoever the new face of the frickin' company is at that point or whatever. In a match, preferably at WrestleMania, and if Shane's guy wins, then Shane gets absolute power to run WWE, and the authority is no more. For real this time. The authority is done. But the person that Shane picks is one of the, the big names that has been called up from NXT. So maybe by then it's Finn Balor, maybe it's Sami Zayn. And they play off the fact that those NXT guys, you know, they're Triple H guys. On NXT, Triple H is like the proud papa to all of them. And you play off that in storyline with Triple H trying to convince that person, whoever it is, you know, that they need to do the right thing at WrestleMania, remind them of who gave them their big break and, you know, who who they may be loyal to at WrestleMania. I I think that can make for an intriguing storyline. And then Shane... uh, you know, because you're creating doubt. You're creating doubt about who they may be loyal to when it comes to the match itself. And then ultimately they side with Shane and they win. And we get a babyface authority figure on Raw in uh, Shane McMahon for the first time in, in forever. I mean, we've had a babyface GM for a while now on NXT with William Regal. And he's been great in that role. You know, he rarely shows up. And when he does, there's a reason for it. He's there to make an important announcement, or he's there to oversee a contract signing. 
He doesn't just show up every single week to try to screw over, <laughs> you know, and tear down everybody on the roster. I never understood that. You know, it never made any sense to me because they all work for him anyway. So you're putting these different guys, like some big names in these matches where if you lose, you're fired. Like, what kind of general manager in their right mind in like a real-life situation would ever do something like that? I never really got that. I never understood that. I don't know why they still do it. So I like that idea. That would be my idea. And then let's see how Shane does in the role. Shane doesn't have to be on TV every week. But I think Shane as a a character who shows up on TV, you know, semi-regularly would be... A nice break from this authority bullshit that's been going on since 2013. LeBrian from El Paso, Texas. I always wondered why wasn't there a Macho Man vs. Razor Ramon match on TV? After Razor Ramon interfered in the Ric Flair-Randy Savage rematch. Or was there a television taping of this match? The two of them had a, a bunch of house show matches in late 92. I checked this out. on. There's a great website, The History of WWF. And they do it by year. It's literally just a listing of every single match, house show match, TV taping match, uh, that took place in the entire calendar year. So I went to the page for 1992, which I've been on before, uh, because every time I remember a match that I saw, but I I can't remember where it was from, I kind of refer back to that, and usually I'll be able to find it on there. They have a listing of every single show that took place that year, what arena it was, what date, if it was a TV taping... There were a bunch of Savage Razor Ramon matches that year. Uh, And there was also a match that was taped for TV. It was taped for Superstars, but it looks like it aired only on the Italian version of Superstars. Uh, So that match, you could find that match on YouTube. I'm assuming it was only on the Italian version because the version on YouTube has uh, a logo in the corner. I think that indicates it's on some Italian network. But the match between Razor and uh, Savage from that taping is up on YouTube. The quality, though, be forewarned, is very bad. Now, he also wants to know, he says, Was Yokozuna always supposed to get the quick push that he got when he debuted? Rarely back in those days did newcomers get that quick of a push until Brock Lesnar came along. If not, then what was the original plan? Um, For Yoko, I, I think that was the plan from the point that they brought him in, was to give him the monster push. I, I do remember hearing something about him coming in with the head shrinkers or or he was going to it was going to be like a trio maybe i don't remember where i heard that i don't know how credible that is uh the wwf title situation changed when they had to get the belt off rick flair they had a list of five or six guys brett's name was on that list they went with him Brett's story, he's, he's talked about this. His story has changed a whole bunch of times about what the plans were for him as the champion before he lost the belt to Yoko at WrestleMania 9. I mean, Brett's claimed that he was supposed to wrestle Jake the Snake, and Jake was going to put him over, but Jake, Jake was long gone by that point. I mean, Jake, Jake left the company after WrestleMania in April. Uh, Brett has claimed that Ultimate Warrior was going to lose to him in the sharpshooter at the Royal Rumble, which I cannot for the life of me ever imagine him agreeing to or why they would even blow that match off of the rumble instead of just waiting and doing it at wrestlemania i mean none of that makes sense uh and maybe they told him that maybe they said hey listen the plan is the warrior is going to put you over i'm sure look i'm sure they told these guys a lot of bullshit that never actually happened so i'm not even saying brett's just making stuff up but i just cannot for the life of me ever picture that happening you know had warrior not gotten fired i'm sure he wasn't going to be losing to bret hart 
You know, for the same reasons that Hulk Hogan did not want to lose to Bret Hart. And I think Warrior was probably more difficult to work with than Hulk Hogan was. Steven in California. What would the state of WWE be if this whole Hulk Hogan racist scandal happened back in the 80s during his prime? Would WWE still be around today? Well, obviously it would not have happened back then because you didn't have uh, cell phone video and... uh, and this wasn't even a cell phone video. This was a hidden camera in someone's home. But all that kind of stuff you didn't have back then. But let's say uh, it was somehow recorded and somebody dropped the tape off at the New York Times office or whatever. And it became a big story. It would have hurt them. No doubt about it. I mean, if this was at Hogan's Peak, so we're talking like 86, 87, it would have hurt him to some extent. But I don't think it would have hurt him as much as, as these kind of things hurt people now. There is an element of everything is so politically correct and every little thing you do, it gets blown up into something bigger. But, you know, largely I think that's because of of social media and because it's so much easier for people to communicate. And if one person looks like they're pissed off about something, then somebody, oh, well, I should be pissed off too. I mean, that does happen a lot. You would not have had that problem 30 years ago. Uh, and I just think the world was different. I mean, there was a lot of shit that happened back then that people just either didn't know about, or they kind of knew about it, or the you know, the news people knew about it, but you didn't have TMZ back then going after every little thing. If somebody, if some celebrity is walking down the sidewalk and fucking spits in the gutter, all of a sudden it's a big story on TMZ. This guy hates the environment, and you know they're sticking a camera in his face. You just wouldn't. You never would have had that in the '80s. You just never would have had that. And I'm not really sure how much this would have hurt Hogan back then. It, it, it wouldn't have killed WWE, no. No, no. Absolutely not. The company would have been fine. They would still be around today. It's not like they would have ceased to exist. Uh, it, it might have hurt them for a little bit, but I think it would have been just business as usual after a while. I really don't think it would have had the kind of impact that it had this year. And like I said, things have just changed so much in that time. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that people get in trouble for now that would not have even... People wouldn't have batted an eyelash back then. And the bigger star you are, the easier it is for you to skate on by. Maybe if it was like a lower card guy in WWE, they might have you know fired them for it or something. Uh, it would have been awfully hypocritical, I think, also for Hogan to have been reprimanded, let's say, if WWE was going to take action to try to make themselves look better. Given the climate of the company back then, I mean, we're talking racism... Okay, you, you kind of see where I'm where I'm going with this here. Boy, that would have been the height of fucking hypocrisy for them to uh, penalize Hogan or anybody for doing something or saying something racist back in the fucking 80s. <laughs> when, I mean, they were pretty much offending every race, every creed, every color. I mean, nothing was off limits back then. And you hear the stories about things that were said and done behind the scenes. I mean, racism like you wouldn't fucking believe. Uh, I mean, you think racism in, in wrestling still exists and is bad today. You got no fucking idea when you hear stories about what was going on back then. So, uh, to answer the question, I, I don't think it would have really harmed WWE at all. I think they would have continued on just fine. Luke, from Australia. If Ken Shamrock had stayed in WWF for a longer period of time, do you think he could have won the WWF title? He was a King of the Ring winner and had the Intercontinental and Tag Team titles to his name as well. I thought he was a good wrestler, and I really liked his crazy gimmick. He really did give the impression of being the world's most dangerous man when he was out of control. Yeah, I think uh, any guy that punches himself in the face and screams before he gets into the ring, before every match, is probably somebody I don't care to be messing around with. 
But I think you know, when Shamrock left, it was early 2000. It was either late 99 or early 2000 when he left. If he didn't win the championship by then, then he wasn't going to win the championship at all. I think they missed their opportunity. If they wanted to put the title on him, uh, the time to do it would have been 97 or 98 when he was still fresh in WWE. He was the world's most dangerous man, and he was coming from that, that cage-fighting world. And you've got to just make this guy this unstoppable mo- Like I'll tell you what. If they would have booked Ken Shamrock the way they booked Brock Lesnar ever since he beat the streak, then Ken Shamrock would have been that version of Brock Lesnar back in 1997 or 1998 or the closest thing to it. And he would have had that legitimacy that Brock has coming from that world. And, you know, he was this big, muscle, jacked-up dude, so he had the look that Vince McMahon, I'm sure, you know, excused himself and took two minutes in the bathroom over. Uh, so, yeah, that would have been the time to put the championship on Shamrock, and they, they missed the boat. And once they started beating him and he just became like every other wrestler on the roster, that specialness that he had when he first came in, it was gone. And now he was just another guy. Uh, and I, I I think Shamrock was actually a very good wrestler. There are some people who don't think he was that good. I don't know why they think that. Shamrock always impressed me when he was in the ring. I didn't see too many other people his size doing standing uh, Hurricane Ronas in the ring and taking risks like that. I, I thought he was a very good wrestler and absolutely could have been champion maybe for you know a, a brief period of time in 98 or something if they wanted to put the title on him. Maybe he could have been an opponent for Steve Austin. But once they missed their opportunity with Shamrock when he first came in, and then Austin started to build steam, and you had Rock and all those people, Shamrock just, as a star, he just wasn't at their level. And so now you're in a situation where, yeah, we could put the belt on Ken Shamrock, but why the hell would you put the belt on Ken Shamrock when you've got Stone Cold Steve Austin, and you've got The Rock, and you've got The Undertaker, and you've got all these other guys? They had more than enough stars, and that's why Shamrock got bumped down to you know, upper mid-card. And at that point, he wasn't getting the belt. I mean, he could have stayed for another five years. I don't think he would have gotten the belt. Jimmy from York, Pennsylvania. Buy or sell? The XFL or the WBF? Either way, he says, you are losing money. Which do you choose? Well, that is true. Either way, it's a it's a disappointment and a an epic failure. So it's, I guess, which epic failure was better than the other? I'm going to go with the XFL. I'm buying the XFL. I'm selling the WBF. Maybe it's a matter of personal preference. I never got the whole bodybuilding thing. I know Vince has always been into that, Triple H, all those guys. Vince especially, he's always had a hard-on for, for the bodybuilders and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was a fan. I was a kid, but I was a fan of that era when WBF was a thing, and they had a magazine at one point. They had a show called Body Stars. They tried to uh, kind of cross-promote on some of the WWF shows, and even then, I didn't give a shit. Because to me, that's not exciting. I mean, and I, I know there might be some people who are bodybuilders who are listening to this, who are in that world, but as just a form of entertainment, I personally just don't see what's so entertaining about it. It's not my thing. You know, football, football I can get behind. I'll, I'll get behind a football game, you know, any day before I get behind a bodybuilding competition. That's just me. Uh, so that's why I'm going with the XFL. But I, I will also say this. Here's about the XFL, because people love to make fun of it. It lost, you know, whatever, $30 million, $60 million, whatever it was. And it only went one season. But at least with the XFL, it has a lasting legacy that the WBF does not have. And that is the overhead field cam. I never saw that used before I saw it for the first time in the XFL. 
That was one of those unique things that they were trying. It was a unique camera angle where you have a camera overhead on the field, not from the sidelines, not like a hard camera, and it kind of follows the action out of the snap and everything else. I never saw that before. Maybe it existed, and I just, you know, I'm completely oblivious here. But I understand that to be an innovation of the XFL. And very shortly after that, when the XFL went under, all of a sudden the NFL started using it. And now it's just commonplace. You see that all the time. And I credit that to the XFL. So at least with the XFL, they have that as a lasting legacy. It was not a total and complete loss like the WBF was. Angelo from Toronto there have been many potential dream matchups that we just missed having, where two guys were in the same promotion at the same time, but only for a very short window. For example, Shawn Michaels returning when Steve Austin was on his way out, or The Rock, well, I mean, they wrestled multiple times, so we kind of did get that match, but anyway. Uh, the Rock returning shortly after Shawn Michaels retired, Sting and Undertaker seemingly just missing each other with this injury, or even Goldberg versus Austin while they were both active for a very short window before Austin's retirement. What do you think is the greatest missed dream matchup of guys who just missed one another in terms of being in the same company at the same time? Well, on the Goldberg-Austin thing, I mean, they, they really did just miss each other, but there really was no overlap there. Goldberg literally debuted on Raw the night after the WrestleMania, where Austin wrestled his retirement match. So it's not like Austin was still active. As of that night, he was no longer active. So you can't cut it any closer than that. So yeah, they, they just missed each other, and that would have been a big match. For me, I think Rock and Shawn Michaels is a match that I always come back to is a match they could have done if Rock wanted to do it and he just didn't want to. Uh, that's a good one. But to me, the biggest match, the biggest missed opportunity is, is an easy one. And maybe as a, as a match, it wouldn't have been as good as Rock against Shawn Michaels. But the biggest box office uh, match that they missed was easily Hulk Hogan against Stone Cold Steve Austin. There is no other answer to that question. Like I said, I don't know how good the match would have been you know, at that point, we're looking at, what, 2002? Yeah, that's when they could have done it at WrestleMania 18 that year. I mean, Rock and Hogan had a great match. I mean, that crowd, my God. I mean, the match itself was pretty basic, but the crowd just, I mean, that it turned the match into, like, you would think this was the 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 second coming of Hogan versus Andre at WrestleMania 3. This was an amazing thing to watch. But in terms of the biggest possible match that they could have done, that they just missed the chance to pull off, uh, it would have done gigantic business, I think, if promoted properly. If they promoted that as the biggest match of all time, then it would have been. And so to me, it's got to be Hogan versus Austin. Drew from Bristol, England. I was watching In Your House Beware of Dog and noticed at the end of the main event, Shawn Michaels is visibly annoyed at the timekeeper. Well, Shawn Michaels was uh, visibly annoyed at everybody back then. He goes over to the timekeeper and the camera catches him saying, Get it fucking right. Do you have any idea what the timekeeper did to Sean to get him so annoyed? It's actually been edited off the network, but is on the original copy that I have. Uh, if I remember, I don't think that match was really any good. And one of the reasons may have been that I don't know that those guys knew that their match was airing on TV. Uh, they had the blackout. Remember, they, only one match aired. It was uh, Mark Merrow against Triple H, I think, might have been the opening match. 
And then as Savio Vega was coming to the ring for the strap match against Steve Austin, the feed went out. They had this giant storm. The feed went out. I remember looking at a blue screen for two hours. I was so pissed. And when it finally came back on, it came back on just in time for the main event as these guys were coming to the ring. I don't know that Sean or, or Bulldog knew. They might have just... Because the show was still going on in the dark. They did all those matches in the dark for the live crowd. So it's very, very possible that Sean and Bulldog thought, okay, we're coming out and we're going to have a match, but we're going to you know, go at half speed because we're not on pay-per-view. And so I think that might have had something to do with it. I remember reading that Sean and Bulldog, both of them were extraordinarily pissed off uh, because they knew the, the match they had sucked. And it could just be that once they found out they were on TV, Sean just blew a gasket. I mean, I don't know what the timekeeper did. I don't know what the timekeeper said that would have pissed them off, but that's what it may have been. And I, I'm just speculating because I don't know for sure. That, to me, would be the most logical explanation for it. And then, you know, those two guys came back the very next month at the King of the Ring, and they had a much better match. That was the match that had Mr. Perfect as the guest referee. Uh, On the network, I think they merged the two versions of that in-your-house pay-per-view together, so the Sean Bulldog match is like the second match on the card, and then it goes right into the other three matches that they retaped a couple of nights later. Uh, There's actually a really good... That strap match with Austin and Vega is excellent if you've never seen it. And so that's up on the network right now. MJ from Tennessee. Who is the better heel? Triple H from 2002 to 2006 or Edge from 2006 to 2008? Or Randy Orton? (laughs) I almost forgot he had Randy Orton here. Uh, Or Randy Orton from 2005 to 2010? Triple H was really good. He was a very, very good heel. But I hated that reign of terror. Uh, It was more boring to me than anything else until the Batista stuff. The Batista stuff was actually really good. Uh, Triple H, for all the talk about guys, oh, he's buried or he's he's never made stars, Triple H absolutely helped make Batista a main event top-of-the-line draw, uh, a main event top-of-the-line star. And then Batista beat him three straight pay-per-views, WrestleMania, uh, there was, I think, one in between, and then was it Vengeance? It was like a Hell in a Cell match? I mean... Not many people got to beat Triple H, let alone three straight times. So he absolutely helped elevate Batista to the main event level, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, We didn't get any of that even Steven bullshit that we see with everybody now where they trade wins back and forth. This was a decisive win for Batista. This was a decisive, this is our new guy now. He's number one. So I like that, but I'm going to go with Edge. Edge was a fantastically scummy heel, just the way he wanted it. He didn't want to have any uh, redeeming qualities whatsoever. He didn't want to have any merchandise. He didn't want to have any t-shirts, because why would you buy a t-shirt if you hate somebody? Uh, Even Triple H would be out there sometimes, you know, cracking jokes and stuff like that. Edge didn't do any of that. He did not want to be liked. He would do dastardly things, and then he would get his comeuppance usually in the end. If you look at the entire body of his career, I probably would give the nod to Triple H. But based on those time periods, and Randy Orton was also very good, but based on those time periods, I'm, I'm going with Edge. I think Edge was the best heel. Nathan from York, Pennsylvania. A lot of Pennsylvania people. There has been a lot of talk about Goldberg's undefeated streak in WCW. People say it was not exactly 173-0. and 0. 
and that it's actually a lot less. Just wanted to get your opinion on this, whether or not you think the streak is legit. The streak is not legit. That is your answer. I think it was about halfway through they started padding it. Uh, they would add house show wins to it and stuff like that, but the, like the number of shows didn't add up. <laughs> it's like you go through a weekend and you come to Nitro the next week, and somehow Goldberg's streak jumped like by 15. It's like, I don't think Goldberg wrestled 15 matches in the last week. So yeah, it started, they had a perfectly legitimate thing going, and then they just felt the need to pad it and pad it, and yeah, it, it was not a, a legitimate number. Uh, I mean, unless he was spearing and jackhammering people randomly in the parking lot, and they were counting those as wins, but 173 was not the actual number. It's amazing how simple it was to get Goldberg over with that streak. It's like the polar opposite of how WWE pushes its guys today. Like, it's top guys. They overexpose them on TV. They make it very clear they want you to cheer for the guy. Cena, Roman Reigns, whoever. And the fans, of course, now they end up rebelling against anybody who they even perceive WWE is pushing down their throats. And they rebel against it. And until it's someone they really, really like, then it's okay. It's like a Dean Ambrose, that's okay. You know, Goldberg, look at the way they pushed Goldberg. Goldberg was an unknown, he was an undercard guy for months. He was not overexposed. His matches were two minutes long. He would come out, he would kick your ass, he would spear you and jackhammer you and hit the showers. People started picking up on the streak after a while, and it just kind of naturally grew into this thing. And they were smart enough, Eric Bischoff was smart enough to recognize it and not beat him not have Hulk Hogan in his ear seeing what was going on here and being like, hey, brother, you know, we got to beat this guy, you know. Like, they stuck to their guns and they, they built this streak up and he deserves a lot of credit for that because that was probably the only legitimate star, like, truly big star that they created during that Monday Night Wars period. I mean, you could put DDP on that list too, but Goldberg was, like, the one big guy that they made. He was the one big guy that they actually got it right with. And it was such a simple formula. James from Los Angeles. I know the wrestling universe wants to shun Chris Benoit from any discussion, but I cannot omit the matches that he has had, especially the ones with Kurt Angle. Which, in your view, was the better match? Kurt Angle against Chris Benoit from WrestleMania 17, or Kurt Angle against Chris Benoit in a cage match on Monday Night Raw? I have not seen either one of those matches in many years. I remember both of them. Uh, And by the way... How about their championship match at the Royal Rumble? Where's that match? You know, that's only one of the greatest championship matches I've ever seen. I think that was easily their best match. Of the two that you mentioned, I think the cage match was the better match. I think just by virtue of the fact that I remember more about it than their WrestleMania match. I, the, the only thing I remember at the WrestleMania match was being disappointed. More so in the finish. And that was the first match. So it was the first of many more that were to come. Uh, But I just remember thinking, man, that was kind of disappointing. The Raw match was just fucking crazy. The things that those guys did in that match, I mean, you had Kurt Angle's moonsault off the top of the cage, which may be the first time that he ever did it. Not the last, unfortunately, but the first. He blew out his knee on the landing. Chris Benoit doing the diving headbutt from the top of the cage, which is just... So fucking depressing now, looking back on that, when you see how things played out with him. 
But that was it was a hell of a match. I think Steve Austin was on commentary for that match. He was the heel champion at the time. I think he he slammed the door on someone's did he slam the door on someone's head? I think he might have. But uh you know, from what I remember that was a that was a pretty incredible match the two of them had in the cage and the stuff they did was just insane. So I'll pick that match over the uh, WrestleMania match. Ryan from Chicago, buy or sell a WWE title run for Owen Hart in 1994 or a WWE title run for Ryback in 2012. Owen was a top heel in 94 and having him win the title and hold it until WrestleMania 11 before dropping it back to Bret would have been the better way to go than Shawn against Diesel. Ryback was white hot in the fall of 2012, was booked strong, and was undefeated. I think WWE dropped the ball by not putting the title on an undefeated Ryback. What do you think? Well, I was just talking about, you know, Goldberg's streak in that mailbag question before. The closest thing I can compare Goldberg's streak to in WWE would be that Ryback run in 2012. And, and it wasn't nearly as hot. But that's the closest comparison I can make. And that's probably also why people were chanting Goldberg at him every single week. One of the many reasons. But, I mean, it's not like he was he was pushed as a top star or anything. They just kind of put him out there each week. He was squashing some jobbers. And people realized, hey, this guy is undefeated. And then John Cena got hurt. And they plugged Ryback back into that Hell in a Cell match against CM Punk for the title. And the pay-per-view did a big number. Especially for one of those uh, Hell in a Cell shows. Did a very big number. But he lost. He lost because they had their WrestleMania plan set with The Rock, and they didn't want to take the title off Punk. And so he got beat, and after that, the party was over. He was never the same. And if they put the championship on Ryback that night, who knows how much bigger he could have gotten? We'll never know, because he was very over at that time. But fans these days, they get very tired of you. You become yesterday's news a lot quicker, I think, than you did back then. And so if Ryback, you know, wasn't very good on the mic or anything like that, at some point he would have been exposed, and I'm sure the worm would have turned. And maybe he would have gone from being this undefeated, badass, babyface champion to being this hated heel champion. I mean, he may have had a real a real run in him. But the timing was all wrong. I mean, shit, you can, you can actually make the argument that John Cena kind of fucked over Ryback just by virtue of getting hurt. Because if John Cena was didn't hurt his elbow, it would have been John Cena against CM Punk. And Ryback, they could have kept him unbeaten, they could have had him doing something else. But once they made the decision to put him in that match, and it was a hell in a cell, so you can't do like a, a DQ. You gotta have a you gotta have a finish. Because it's October, it's Hell in a Cell, one of the many reasons I fucking hate when they do that, and, and why Hell in a Cell should not be its own pay-per-view. Uh, they backed themselves into a corner and they had no choice. It's either shake up our plans or we just go with the status quo and we're going we're gonna to cool this guy down. And that's exactly what happened. And so to go back to your original question, am I buying on this? Am I buying on Owen? I was a big fan of Owen as the King of Hearts back in 94. Uh, and I think you could have done that. You could have put the title on Owen and then had Brett get it back from him many months later. But of the two, I'm going to buy on Ryback as the champion in 2012, and I'm going to sell on Owen in 94 as the champ. I definitely think they could have gone in a couple of different directions for that WrestleMania 11 card. WrestleMania 11 sucked, and there were other matches you could have done. Whether Owen was the champion or not, it almost didn't even matter. Uh, but Ryback, there was more potential. There was, a, there was a lot more potential, I think, in Ryback at his peak 
at his at his most popular with that championship that could have made a hell of a lot more money with him hot on top as the undefeated babyface than I think they would have in 94 when they really weren't doing very well anyway uh, by putting the title on Owen Hart. So I'm buying on Ryback and his title run, and I'm selling on Owen and his. And we'll do one more buy or sell here since I get so many of them and I'm, I'm kind of backed up. We'll do one more. Matt, this comes from uh, him. Buy or sell? Jeff Hardy's WWE career or Jeff Hardy's TNA career? I don't know if Jeff has had more years in TNA now than he has in WWE. I know Kurt Angle has now spent more time in TNA than he than he did in WWE. I don't know if Jeff Hardy also has, but it's got to be pretty close. So it's kind of the tale of two careers with him. I, I still I have to say buying on his WWE career and selling on his TNA career. Uh, and a big part of that, quite honestly, is when I think back to that Victory Road match with Sting. That was such an embarrassment. It was such an embarrassment for Jeff Hardy. It was an embarrassment for TNA that they even allowed that to happen. I felt bad for Sting. I felt bad to some extent for Jeff Hardy as well, but I felt worse for the fans, and I felt worse for for Sting. Uh, And that never should have happened, and that was an embarrassing moment. I guess that was a low point for him, and, and thankfully, he's worked his way back up and he's left that behind him and I'm I'm very happy for the guy. But when I think of his TNA career, that's that moment is a very big part of it. And that was not the only moment that Jeff had issues. He had issues in WWE too, but when I look at their careers, I look at what he did, you know, as a tag team wrestler, uh him and his brother became one of the most uh popular tag teams in the history of that company when he broke off as a single star, especially in like 08. He I don't think people realize that for a while there, in 2007 maybe into 2008, Jeff Hardy was the most popular wrestler in the world. I mean, just based on pure popularity, he was the number one guy. And they did put the championship on him uh, later in the year in 08, but I, you know, you could argue they kind of screwed the pooch by not doing it at the Rumble. I was at that show. It was Jeff Hardy against Randy Orton. Not only did Orton beat him, but Orton beat him in like a quick nothing match out of nowhere with the RKO. It was very disappointing. Looking back on it, Jeff was, I think, supposed to win money in the bank at WrestleMania, but he got popped for a drug violation and he was suspended. So, hindsight being what it is, WWE made the right call. I don't think at that time they knew that Jeff was either on something or was going to possibly be suspended, so... You know, putting the championship on him seemed like the smart thing to do, as popular as he was at the time. They they put the belt on him, but it was only for like a month. They put the world heavyweight title on him. He had a feud with Edge. He had a feud with CM Punk. I mentioned before Triple H putting over Batista in 2005 and making him a main event star. You could say the same thing about Jeff Hardy with CM Punk in 2009. I think CM Punk would have gone on to become a main event star anyway, and I know there were some issues between, uh, or maybe there still are. I, I don't think Punk really likes the Hardy Boys, and uh, I don't think Jeff Hardy was very happy when they sent Punk out there on TV after Jeff left the company to mock him for that uh, drug drug bust at his house. Um, although they told Punk to do that, but I guess Punk maybe could have said no. But So there's no love lost there, but I, I really do think that Punk owes him a debt of gratitude because Jeff Hardy did everything he could to help put CM Punk over as a, as a big star. And they wrestled. They had that TLC match at SummerSlam in 09. That was a very good match. 
Punk won that match. Uh, Punk beat him clean in a cage match on TV, I think, in September. Uh, Jeff really, you know, he, he even stayed late because I think the story then was Jeff's contract was already done. And he was looking to get out. I don't think the plan was that he was going to jump the TNA. Uh, I mean, the drug thing happened, and then he ended up going to TNA. But he just he had to take a break. He was just running on fumes. And they just kept convincing Jeff, just stay a little bit longer. Just stay a little bit longer. So he stayed. He stayed longer to put over CM Punk. He didn't have to do that. So I look at that, and that was a good run that he had going there. Jeff was was really a top guy in, in the company and one of the top names in all of wrestling. And he was never that in TNA just by virtue of TNA being so small and just not, you know, it's just a blip on the radar. And Jeff has done everything he could, I think, to help TNA. But if I'm looking at the two careers he's had, I'm going with WWE. He's a much bigger star in WWE, and I think he had a much better run there. And we will end with this week's sad tweet. The uh, the other sad tweet, I guess. We've had a whole bunch of them here spread out over the show, and some I didn't even get to. Uh, the Beth Flair tweet made me legitimately sad. This one is sad in more of a facepalm kind of way. And yet another example of why some people just should not be on social media. Melina Perez. Remember Melina from WWE? Uh, as many of you are aware, she has been dating uh, John Morrison, now Johnny Mundo, uh, off and on for uh, probably about a decade now. Very early on Thursday morning, on her official Twitter account, at Real Molina. She tweeted a photo of what looks like herself holding a prescription... Well, it's her hand, but... Holding a prescription pill bottle belonging to John Morrison, whose real name is John Hennigan, and it's on the bottle, John Hennigan. And it was a prescription for Cialis, which is, of course, used to treat erectile dysfunction. People may use it for other reasons as well, but that's the primary purpose of the drug. It is for increased sexual performance. Which you probably don't need me to tell you, because you already know that if you watch any major sports here on American TV. I don't know how it is overseas. I watched every game of the World Series, and every single commercial break, I was forced to sit through boner pill commercials. So, we're all well aware of what Cialis is by now. Okay. Why she tweeted that photo, I have no idea. She quickly deleted the tweet. Somebody, of course, took a screenshot before she did that, which is what I saw. I saw the screenshot. She apparently tweeted a second photo of the bottle, because one wasn't enough, this time with Mundo's home address on it, and then she quickly deleted that as well. And she followed that up by saying, For moments like these, I wish social media and smartphones didn't exist. Yes, because it's that damn evil smartphone that coerced her into tweeting those photos out. Damn social media, it's all your fault. But Johnny, you see, Johnny has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of here, because none other than the rattlesnake himself, Stone Cold Steve Austin, once admitted on his podcast that he too takes Cialis, not because he needs to, but because it helps him, and I'm quoting here, I looked up the quote to make sure I wasn't messing it up. He said, and I quote, It makes him fuck better. And when I fuck, I'm pretty goddamn happy. End quote. And you know what? If it's good for Stone Cold, it's good for Johnny Mundo.
So he's got nothing to worry about. But that is a very sad tweet, and not very cool of her to do that. I don't know if that means they're on the outs, or I don't know what was going through her head when she did that. Especially if you're tweeting out the guy's... Bad enough you're tweeting out a prescription that the guy has in your home, but if it's got his home address on it, not cool. But uh, if you have your own suggestion for said tweet, and there were a lot of them this week, you can uh, tweet them to me at Solomonster, and I might actually use them here on the podcast. Also, follow me at Solomonster. I'll be live tweeting during the Survivor Series tonight. Don't forget to vote in our weekly Raw poll as soon as the show goes off the air on Twitter. Every single Monday night, you can vote in the poll there, as many of you did last week. And also, got to mention this, we have the Black Friday sale that starts this Wednesday. We had it last year, ProWrestlingTees.com. It was a big success. If you guys are looking, if you've been waiting, if you've been thinking about ordering a shirt from our store, there's over 20 of them to choose from. We have the brand new 8-Year Strong shirt in there. They ship all over the world. There is a Black Friday sale that starts this Wednesday, November 25th. It kicks off at 12 p.m. Eastern. It goes through all the way to the following Monday, November 30th, also at 12 Eastern. So it's a five-day Black Friday sale. If you order one shirt, if you order multiple shirts, you get 20% off the uh, order total. So it's 20% off of your total order. If you order over $100 worth of t-shirts, you get a special Andre the Giant t-shirt that they'll throw into the order as well so use the promo code black friday all one word that's the promo code you have to make sure you use when you go to check out again it'll be 20 percent off the total of your order if you have been waiting for a reason to order a shirt in our store this is the time to do it take advantage of the offer use the promo code get 20 percent off again it's only for those five days starts this wednesday the 25th it goes through 12 noon on the 30th so uh, get on that, ProWrestlingTees.com slash Solomonster Sounds Off, and you can uh, grab some Sound Off gear. You can even grab some Sound Off gear as a holiday gift if you want to. Use the discount, get a couple of shirts, give it to somebody as a gift. We will be back next weekend for a, a brand new episode, episode 411, which will of course be after the Thanksgiving holiday, so I want to take this moment here to wish everybody a very happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you are spending it with friends and family and doing something uh, fun for it. And uh, we'll see you right back here again next week. I'm thankful to have you guys listening to my show every week. How's that? How's that for uh, something to be thankful for? And hopefully you'll uh, be back next weekend. Until then, be well, stay safe, enjoy your Thanksgiving, and we'll be back for more uh, wrestling insanity next weekend. Until then, take care, guys. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The Solomonster sounds off. Hulk Hogan's WCW contract splattered all over the internet. He got a $2 million signing bonus, 25% of the ticket revenue from all Nitro and Thunder events that he appeared on. He also got $20,000 per month for as long as he was part of the NWO, 50% of the profits from any Hulk Hogan merchandise that was sold, and a minimum $675,000 for any pay-per-view he appeared on. You know what I say? I say good for him. If I could get that kind of deal for myself, if somebody wanted me that badly, they were that stupid, then great. Always ask for what you feel you're worth. Your boss should have the guts to say no. WCW wanted to blow this guy so badly, they put a towel down on the floor so they wouldn't get rug burned. Some monster sounds off. Since 2007, the Salamonster sounds off. Available at thesalamonster.com, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and more. Solo monsters sound off.